WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 380. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3E at the Embassy Suites in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's show is recorded on the 21st of June, 2019. In today's episode, a United Airlines plane makes a hard landing at Newark, damaging the aircraft and an Indian businessman gets life in prison for placing a fake hijacking note in a passenger jet's lavatory. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Cloud Suck. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 380 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's a real live radio professional in the biggest market, radio market in the world, New York City. Thank you for doing that. And you're listening to the Aviation Podcast Airline Pilot Guy Show. And uh, we talk about airline aviation, all kinds of news like that. And we also answer your feedback. And joining me from across the pond in the English countryside. A professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain, no, former captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hey, hi there, Jeff. Yes, thoroughly retired now. And I'm really looking forward to episode A380, the biggest civilian uh, aviation podcast going. I'm sorry, you must have misheard. It's episode 380, not A380. It, but it's a 380, isn't it? No. Oh. And also joining us. Sure, if, if you want it to be, let's make it an A380 episode. Okay, and, but we don't have any news items about the A380. Anyway, uh, joining us from his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer and captain for a major u.s legacy carrier it's captain dana well hello everybody i'm kind of jealous actually now that i'm sitting here looking at nick on the, the photograph here because he is looking nice and relaxed now that he's retired oh actually i think he's busier than he was before he retired i know but he's not he's not doing all the time zones so he looks so relaxed and no bags under the eyes and smiling and chipper and jovial yeah you're seeing something entirely different than i am (laughs) anyway i've just got the rose filter on my rose colored filter on my camera well how are you guys uh oh steph is uh apparently not going to be joining us today she is in chicago so uh doing some lecturing and has nothing to do with classroom lectures she's just going around lecturing people Telling them how bad they are. Don't do that. That's bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's just the way Steph is sometimes. She's yeah. teaching people how to stab people in the back. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, that is true. Anyway, um, 
So let's move on to what we have been doing since the last episode. And uh, let's start with... Okay, I'll start. Um, I've been flying a trip. When did we do our last one? Thursday? Let's see. Anything interesting over the weekend? No. Um, Went out... uh, Or wait, did I do... Did I do that? Uh, I don't remember what I did. <laughs> CRS. I can't remember stuff. I just, I'm, I'm just trying to remember if I did that uh, Chicago green slip uh, since the last show. Was that just this past? Yeah. Was that Father's Day last weekend? Yes. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Where am I? Yes. Well, yes. Okay, I well, worked this yes, past so Sunday. It was, on, it was thank Father's you. Day. Thank you. Thank you. Sunday. Um, I ended up... Uh, my son wasn't home. He was up in Boston for a wedding. And so I said to my wife, I, I was getting contacted by Acme for uh, doing a, a deadhead to Chicago and then fly back to Atlanta the next day, um, green slip. And I said, hey, since not everybody's here, why don't I just do this green slip and then we'll just do my Father's Day dinner uh, tomorrow night, on Monday night. So that's what happened. My son came home late on Sunday and uh, the entire family was together. We went over to a nice little place in Roswell called Hugo's, kind of an oyster bar slash seafood restaurant, good stuff. And uh, and then uh, went out on Wednesday for this four-day trip. So I'm on day three, uh, first night in Jacksonville, uh, the second day yesterday, Little Rock. And I was supposed to be in Louisville, Kentucky today, but uh, was rerouted because of a little minor fiasco this morning in Little Rock, which I'm not going to go into. And uh, so that kind of got me a little bit off track, and they didn't think we had enough time to make that Louisville um, uh, break or the flight. So they called, they grabbed somebody else off. In fact, the guy that was supposed to do this flight to Birmingham um, did the Louisville, and I did the Birmingham, although. His co-pilot still did the Birmingham. It's just so messed up. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, um, so here I am in Birmingham, Alabama, and the weather is nice. Very hot, but uh, mostly clear skies, cloud here and there. But uh, uh, it's, I think, 92 degrees or something here. What is that in uh, Celsius? Like uh, 39, 35? 35 is, four, is 95, so it's like 34 maybe, something like that. Anywho, um, so it's hot. Yeah, it's hot. And I wanted to mention that I did see um, an APG community member who we'll see again when we're in Oshkosh. Uh, His name is Jonathan um, Hardwick. Yes, Jonathan Hardwick. He flies for Spirit. And I was walking down the concourse and he said, hey, Captain Jeff. And I said, hey, you. (laughs) And uh, we talked for a while and he said he's been listening to the show for a while and um Talked for a bit, and then we uh, went off on our separate ways, and then uh, he ended up giving us a nice contribution via the uh, coffee fund. So we'll talk about him again when we do that segment. And what else? Oh, I got um, a very nice gift. I don't know if it was because I was talking about, or Steph was talking about her favorite pen, you know, that uh, fancy pen that has the flashlight on it, and and it has a tactile, you know, like a, uh, what do they call it, touchscreen kind of knob on it thing nib uh and it's a ballpoint and all that kind of stuff and uh sean um must have uh from crew dog electronics must have been listening and sent me a crew dog oh shoot i was gonna i was gonna have my prop it's on my uniform shirt in the closet but it's a nice pretty blue uh, it's like pretty much the exact same pen that uh 
that Steph was talking about as her favorite pen. So thank you for that. Uh, Crew Dog Electronics. And um, that's about everything for me. So who wants to go next? Okay. Nick. Dana? No, Dana. <laughs> Come on, Dana. All right. All right. I, uh, I was on call this past week, and they used me every single day. Um, I had a uh, Memphis in Des Moines, and when I went to Memphis, uh, there's a, uh, a place in Memphis called Westies, just by the uh, hotel that we stay, and it's just uh, about yeah. two blocks. Yeah, it's okay, but you know, when you get in at 10 o'clock at night and you don't go out for 19 hours, what do you no. do? Yeah, well, yeah, so. you just uh, you don't want to go all the way down to Beale Street. It's too far at night. No, not, not that late, so yeah. I end up... Uh, Actually getting contacted uh, by a, a fellow uh, listener that is a uh, Acme pilot. Uh, he was in the crew, lo- crew room when I was dutying in, and he uh, came over and said hello to me. So we were talking, and ironically enough, he was going to be coming to Memphis on the flight right after mine. So we had originally arranged to do lunch the next day, but I had texted him when we had uh, arrived over there at Westies and said, hey, what are you doing? So I had uh, my FO, another FO that deadheaded in that knew the FO that I was flying with, and then this FO, uh, David, and then his captain that came and joined us. And I'm sitting there thinking, I am the oldest guy in this group. I felt so old. So I can relate to some other people in the chat room here uh no so anyways uh yeah we had uh, we had a very fun time there in uh, memphis and chatted then we went out for some gus's chicken the next day in memphis if you ever in memphis go to gus's chicken it's really really good a short overnight in des moines then uh, of course i got notified of my next uh, trip which ended up with a uh, fairly short layover in pensacola um that was about a 12 hour layover and when i was coming back in from pensacola I was supposed to do a Syracuse round trip, and crew scheduling had uh, other plans for me, including taking my day off today uh, and rerouting me to another trip. And that's when I said, hey, uh, you know, I have a day off day, and I'm having oral surgery. I need to be off. And they said, uh, um, yeah, well, guess what? We need you to work. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, well, I'm going to have to uh, take care of uh, some business here. And I went ahead and uh, went down to talk to some people in the chief pilot's office and said, hey, you know, I got a surgery tomorrow and I've got to be there. So they were fortunate and I was fortunate enough that they were able to work out a different situation and crew tracking and got me off the trip that they had put me on, put me back on my original with a nice delay. Um up into Syracuse due to a uh, delayed airplane from Baltimore, uh, which had a right generator failure, and they had uh, deferred it, and uh, that's why the airplane was late coming in. And also, uh, stepping back to Memphis, I had to have my second passenger that I've ever had to have removed after he yelled a few profanities at my flight attendant. Then as I went back, because our first-class lavatory was in up. I went back to go to the restroom. As I walked by, the gentleman night kind of wasn't sure that I heard it 100%, but he said uh, a few choice words to me for no provoked reason other than I was walking by and commenting on my, uh, I'm not going to say what he commented on. Anyways, uh, so I kind of thought I heard it, and he wanted to shake my hand. I, I, I just kind of brushed it off, gave him knuckles. 
because I don't shake people's hands. Um, or at least try not to, because everybody knows what I think about the remote control in the hotel room, right? So, anyways, um, uh, walk back by, and as I'm coming up to about first class, I hear him yell again. Um, I had observed that he was probably under the influence, and I kind of ignored it at that point. Made my, uh, of course, my uh, uh, introduction to my first class passengers, thanking them for my bit for their business. Went back up to the front of the airplane, and then uh, the flight attendant had gone back. The lead flight attendant had started walking back there, and he again yelled profanity at her before she even got there. So I said, "That's it. This gentleman is off the airplane." and uh, got the PSA involved, and he was removed. Then, when he got onto the jetway, was begging to not be removed. I looked at him, I said to him, Sir, after what you've done, I am sorry this aircraft will not be leaving with you on it. And that's how I left it and did some paperwork. So that was my interesting week. Yeah, you're, uh, I think uh, you have 200%. Is this the second one that you've kicked off? Yes. Yeah, 200% more than I have. <laughs> I don't like I don't like it, but you know if people are going to sit there and be rude, noxious, and 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 throw profanities at the customers, well, customers never happen with me. Yeah, they, they, that's another good reason for uh, not flying later in the day, I guess. Yeah, because at six o'clock in the morning, if somebody's drunk, usually they're still passed out. Yeah, not two o'clock in the afternoon when everybody's already been you know having lunch, happy hour, and and uh, you know both of them have been in the late afternoon at this point, and. Uh, I mean, he was clearly, I don't even know if it was alcohol. I think it may have been even more than that. So he was hmm. really, um, really disruptive. And, and passengers all around him, again, were complaining. Yeah. Um, so well, sorry, to, sorry to hear you had the, uh, the issue there, Dana. Yeah, well, I, I have to, my hat's off to Memphis. Um, they did a great job, uh, the, the customer mm -hmm. service and the, uh, um, the, uh, the supervisor. I almost said something, but a certain color coat. But anyways, a supervisor, and then, oh, and I have to ha put my hats off. Anybody in Syracuse happens to listen to this, we landed in Syracuse last night. We had uh, about uh, 32 minutes to turn the airplane around, or my flight attendants were going to go um, illegal. Uh, so by the time we were able to board the aircraft, we only had about 19 minutes. I went up to the podium and made a PA, ladies and gentlemen. I would ask your cooperation to please board this aircraft as quickly as possible, because if we, we are not pushing off the gate or closing the door in 19 minutes, we will not be leaving Syracuse this evening. So amazingly enough, uh, I had, I think it was 60-something, maybe even 70-something military folks on the airplane. And, of course, when they hear an order, <laughs> they cooperate. Um, and they mm -hmm. got, everybody got on the aircraft. It was completely full 90. So everybody got on and we closed the door, uh, three minutes prior to their drop dead time. So that worked out well as well. Excellent. So it was a challenging week, five days of, uh, very, uh, challenging, challenging flying with, uh, some customer service issues involved. Yeah. There was, um, weather earlier in the week too, that we had to deal with. Um, yep. at least I did. Uh, I dealt with it all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you have. All right. Very good. Um, Nicholas. Yes, sir. Are you still awake? No, just about. No, okay. it's fascinating uh, listening to you guys and all the work you do, which I think is really good. Somebody has to do some work around here. Yep. I'm very Hush. impressed. <laughs> <laughs> all I've done is uh, sit around and drink beer. In fact, I'm much more likely to be one of Dana's drunk passengers uh, than I am uh, anything else. So uh, I have a lot you know of what, sympathy. What, sir, sir, sit down. 
<laughs> and sit down. I think you've had yourself. too much to drink. You know what, Dana? I think we need to take this guy off, <laughs> off the show because right now. He's, he's doing nothing. All, but, he, all he does is sit but, around, drink, and play with his balls. But I'm done with the thing. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, sir. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but I have been keeping myself busy. Um, I caught up with a lovely old friend of mine uh, who uh, was the chief photographer for British Aerospace uh, Systems. Uh, and uh, specialized in uh, fast jet air-to-air photography. And uh, if there's two things that get me uh, excited in this world, uh, there are actually more than two, but these <laughs> are two of them. Uh, it's photography uh, from a fighter and of fighters. So uh, 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 Jeff Lee is his name. <laughs> he was very kind. Uh, we've discovered we're living not far away, so uh, he popped over. Uh, and gave me uh, an hour of his time to do an interview, which is coming up in a future plane tale. In fact, there'll be more than one, so that's great. Fascinating story, lovely guy. Um, right, uh, number two, I uh, did a little interview for uh, a travel writer, um, and that was interesting. And if anyone uh, wants to catch up, uh, with that uh, you can find it on a website called uh, let's go somewhere else.co.uk and uh, the lovely lady was called Kirsten and uh, she I think she's a very good writer and has some interesting she's only a young lass uh, but has some interesting uh, places she's already been to around the world and written uh, about them and has done some very nice photography so if you're vaguely interested in that then Please take a look. Liz said it was a super article. I thought it was too, Liz. I thought she yeah. did a great job. I enjoyed it. Uh, and I have one uh, a big apology to make because, of course, a lot of my pain tales are produced in relatively short time. And sadly, we don't have a, a proper fact checker on the uh, APG. So all we do is we get rep retrospective um, pokes in the ribs from our listeners who spot our errors. Now, uh, generally speaking, I try and keep plain tales above the 50% accuracy rate. But uh, I recently did one um, which was sort of uh, about my uh, logbook. And yeah, I know it's sad, isn't it? About my logbook sort of episode uh, three or four, I forget now. And I did mention that uh, when Flying the Phantom, we frequently used to do sorties against electronic jamming aircraft. And I said it was a Canberra, which was correct, but from 100 Squadron, which was incorrect. 100 Squadron were the target towing Canberras, uh, and they uh, used to do that kind of stuff, simulate uh, bombers and that sort of thing. The people that used to do the jamming were actually 360 Squadron. Now, they were a combined uh, Fleet Air Arm and Royal Air Force uh, Squadron in specialist uh, um, Canberras, fitted out with all sorts of uh, electronic jamming equipment. Um, they were actually um, an interesting squadron, uh, and they had a great motto, which was um, Confundimus, uh, which sounds like a Harry Potter spell, I know, but means we shall throw into confusion. Uh, that's a very long translation from a single word, but there you go. Mm. And the squadron badge was... Uh, 
in front of a trident erect, a moth wings displayed, which sounds a bit weird. The trident represented the Royal Navy. The moth wings displayed um, was a, an interesting moth, um, which uh, had the ability to jam a uh, bat's uh, radar. You know, a bat has a little, uh, sends out little squeaks and then hears them and can uh, fix the position of an insect and catch it. Well, this moth was capable of jamming uh, a moth's uh, squeaking radar sort of thing uh, and uh, decoy it. So it, I guess it wasn't a bad motto after all and mm. things. Um, and Neil says in the uh, chat room, isn't that the APG motto? <laughs> we shall throw into confusion. Yes, very yeah. good one. Yes, no, we live we in confusion is our motto. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So uh, I just wanted to offer my apologies and thanks to John Pickard who uh, picked up that a slip of the tongue, my memory isn't as good as it used to be. Yes, yeah, gosh, Nick, how embarrassing. And, and speaking, of, speaking of that, Nick, I... <laughs> My memory is not as good as it used to be either because I was saying David earlier and it's actually Brian. <laughs> That's bad. Ah, okay. Yeah. David well, who? Brian uh, who? Yeah, my FO, the, uh, oh. the FO, the listener that l was listening to me, I said David because I didn't oh. take a chance to look at my notes and because uh, you know how bad I am with names. You know, oh, I thought you were talking about the drunk. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Brian, well, please don't be mad at me. I just... Uh, <laughs> Terrible. I'm terrible. Ryan, I would not let him off on that at all. I'm going to text yeah, him right now and say yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, what, what I did today, uh, the FO that I'm with now, the new the third FO on this trip, um, he said that he is uh, has his family with him on, on the jet. And I said, oh, good. Well, you should fly it then. And I said, do you want me to mention their names when I do the PA? And he said, oh, that would be nice. And so he told me their names. And he said uh, his wife's name was Krista. And then there was... Uh, uh, forgot what Abby, I think. And then Chan. And I forgot what the last name was. And I thought he said they were all daughters, all girls. And, uh, I didn't realize until after the flight was in to Birmingham today and they came up to the front to have some pictures taken and, uh, realized that Chan is not, I just, I was kind of thought, you know, I could see Chan maybe as a girl's name, maybe. Yeah, no, it was a guy. And, uh, so I, t I told him, I said, would Oops. you please apologize to your son? I didn't, cause I think I said on the BA, your three daughters are, are, are with us today in the back of the airplane. So, um, yeah, my bad. So I'm not very good with names either. Um, so, uh, speaking of Jonathan Hardwick, uh, earlier bumped into him, gave us a nice donation. Uh, he is from Memphis and he, uh, said if we are ever there, Dana, to look him up, he'll, uh, show us around and, and, uh, give us the best, uh, that Memphis has to offer. And I as far as food that. is concerned. All right. Um, oh, and Hillel has asked us to uh, mention a couple of things. We're going to shift now to Oshkosh and, uh, the uh, folks that are going to Oshkosh in an effort to coordinate all the, uh, people that are going to be part of the Oshkosh thing and are also APGers. Uh, we, he has created a spreadsheet. Uh, first thing he's created is a questionnaire that you can fill out and that basically fills in the, the, uh, the spreadsheet. So these are two things. I'll put both of the, uh, URLs in the uh, show notes, uh, so that you can first do the questionnaire. If you're planning on attending Oshkosh, it basically says, you know, when you're coming in, when you're leaving, where you're going to be staying, if you know that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a, an effort to coordinate everything. And, uh, Thank you very much, Hillel, for doing that. You did a great job with that. And also, 
uh, I think at the end of the questionnaire, questionnaire, it has a question about whether you want to um, have one of the uh, Osh Blast 2019 t-shirts. And then uh, it gives you the address to use to uh, contact Liz. And then she'll put you down on her spreadsheet. We have dueling spreadsheets. And uh, she's keeping track of everybody that's going to be there at Oshkosh. So that's the best way to get your T-shirt. Um, it, it's just one option, though. It's just you, you just tell us how many and what size. And it's just a, a classic unisex um, shirt. Uh, but it's cheaper than if you use Teespring. Now, if you're not going to join us uh, at Oshkosh and you want to order one of the Oshblash 2019 shirts anyway, you can use the link to Teespring. Uh, and also there's some other options there. There's a woman's t-shirt, there's uh, some tank tops and uh, some different kind of t-shirts like a comfort shirt and a premium shirt and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit more, uh, but it is delivered to your home or your wherever you tell them to do, deliver it. And uh, that's an option for you all um, who are not going to be able to make it uh, to Oshkosh with us this year. So all that stuff is going to be in the show notes. And, this uh, says 48 T-shirts ordered already. Oh, good. Good. Well, I'm hoping we get to at least 60 because that's what I told the printer, and that's how I derived the pricing. So we'll see. Brilliant. And even if we don't reach that uh, threshold, we'll still hold to the price that I've uh, said it would be. I think it's $12 for the shirt. And uh, I think if you're going to order a plus size, which is like 2X, 3X, 4X size, uh, they'll be $15, a little bit extra. Uh, and we will, the deadline, thank you, Liz. Uh, the deadline for ordering is basically the end of this month. Uh, hopefully we'll have all those orders by then. And then I can, uh, send in the order to the, uh, local t-shirt company and they can, uh, print those for us. And then we'll have the boxes of shirts in the, in the car. Uh, Nick and I will take those up to, uh, Dayton, and then uh, when we get look at the U.S. Air Force Museum on Tuesday, the 16th of uh, January, June, and July. Uh, July. That's it. July. No, June, July. <laughs> <laughs> you need <laughs> to retire, mate. <laughs> I do. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think these early mornings are really starting to get to me. Uh, July 16th. That's assuming we have to go on from there. Homeless people on the way. <laughs> <laughs> then we're going to go on from there to Mokina, uh, which is a suburban area of Chicago. We're going to pick up that nice RV and drive it up to uh, Oshkosh. And we're planning on arriving in Oshkosh around either Wednesday or Thursday of the week before Oshkosh. So, oh, and we're counting on all of you uh, who are listening that are uh, residents of Wisconsin that are near Oshkosh, Fond du Lac, and all those communities up there um, we may be uh, asking you to help us out with certain things like if you have some kind of a smoker it would be really nice because uh, it'd be nice to smoke some meat and uh, uh, whatever or at and least uh, cannabis some, and things like that well we're not going to do the smoke you can do that sir i i cannot and dana and i cannot yeah I, i'm retired now yeah i can do this stuff so wherever it's been able to do, do for the last 60 years i can't <laughs> I, exactly, and I can't wait until I am retired myself. I want to roll one of those big old doobies up and figure <laughs> out what, and eat some brownies and cookies and figure out what all these people are so happy and about. The, and the data is going to be in one of those homeless encampments in one of those big cities in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but whatever I, happened to that guy? Uh, he started smoking the weed, and yeah, yeah. I don't know he where tried it out is. once. He, he's never done it in his life, and it's got to find out what's going on. But I won't do that until I'm retired. I promise. Yes, of course. Okay, 
there you go. Uh, I'm sure I've forgotten something, but uh, that's that's all I can think of at this moment. Um, so I think now, unless you all have anything else to say before we move on to the coffee fund, that we go should start. do that. All right, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. The Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And since the last episode. We've had several Coffee Fund Classic donations, which is PayPal. You can do a one-time or a recurring donation via PayPal. And we have Mark Anderson, uh, Randy Ward, Terry Liu, Chris Randall, David Lieb, and Jonathan Hardwick, which I mentioned before with the uh, $100 donation. Thank you. That's going to go a long way to provide well, not a long way, but it'll provide some money for some good beers, I'm sure. And Jonathan, and I'm hoping that you'll join us in, in imbibing some of those with us as well. Uh, we also have another way to support the show via the Coffee Fund, and that is Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via, via Patreon.com. And we have a couple of new producers, Richard Hennessy and Ritesh Patel. And uh, student pilot Chris did the right thing. He heard us say, hey, if you're a student pilot, you need your money for flying lessons, right? So he, uh, he downgraded. You did the right thing. He went from five to one. But that's, that's great. Thank you, student pilot Chris, for being part of our Coffee Fund Club. If you want to, please check it out by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Stand by for news. United Airlines Flight 627 landed at 1 p.m. on runway 22 left at Newark Liberty International Airport, then skidded off the left side of the pavement. The left main landing gear is stuck in a grassy area. The aircraft will be towed off the airfield after passengers leave the aircraft via stairs. They will ride buses to the terminal. No injuries were reported to the FAA. The FAA is en route to the airport to begin the investigation. Flights are delayed until the aircraft is moved. Contact the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for more information on airport status. Contact United for information on passengers and damage to the aircraft. The flight originated at Denver International Airport. That was the official FAA notice when or shortly after uh, United Flight 627 pranged it on at Newark 22 left. Um Apparently, witnesses say that uh, the airplane landed very hard um, the first touchdown on the main gear, and then it bounced. And then after the bounce, the aircraft hit very hard on the nose gear, something we call wheelbarrowing. And that did a lot of damage to the nose wheel, nose gear section. In fact, another passenger reported that the uh, landing gear strut actually came up into the passenger cabin. That's not good. 
Um, so uh, we don't have any new information regarding the the incident accident. I guess it's more of a classified as an accident because of the amount of damage that was done to the airplane. And uh, wow, that's all I can say is that must have been um, uh, quite a landing to ride through. Yeah, no indication whether it was a training trip or any handling problems. The weather doesn't look like it was a significant problem, more or less, down the strip, uh, gusting mm -hmm. gusting 10 knots, but 8 knots, not excessive. Mm -hmm. So I can only assume that uh, something went a little bit uh, awry on the flight deck. Yep. Certainly does look that way. Of course, you know, we don't know for sure. Uh, we're just using or, you know, using the information that we have at this point. But it certainly does look like a typical, just a little bit too hard on the landing, a bounce, and uh, trying to salvage the bounce to landing, and uh, and ending up uh, doing uh, significant damage to the airplane. This is one of those things when you look at some of the pictures here and the the wrinkled skin and the you know quite a bit of damage to the front of the airplane that I'd, I'd be surprised if they were able to re, re repair the airplane. That's uh, the first thing I thought of is that 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 airframe's totaled. I think so. Yeah. Certainly looks like it. So hopefully we'll hear more information about it. The NTSB, I believe, is going to investigate. I don't know if they said that in here or not. The FAA is investigating. I'm not sure about the NTSB. Um, but if the NTSB does investigate, then we will learn more information about this. One has to wonder if this is another one of those you know, newly minted pilots that's... Uh, Might be. Coming, you know, coming back into Newark and... You know, depends on how they run their legs, but we, we don't know. I mean, we don't know, won't know until we have some more information. But that's my thought, first thought. That's wild speculation by Dana, Captain Dana. Wild speculation. Yes, wild. All right. Uh, second thing we have in our news folder is uh, this was a, a, a survey slash study by two men from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Um, let me see if I can find the actual part where it talks about their study. Uh, they say, in our study, we showed people trips of different lengths and asked them to choose whether they would rather drive themselves, take a flight, or ride in a self-driving car. In general, the data indicated that people always preferred driverless vehicles over manual driving. Taking a driverless car got even more attractive if people were told that after flying they would need a rental car in their destination city so basically what the study dealt with and i guess the questions were asked you know if driverless cars actually become a thing which i don't think is going to happen anytime soon especially driverless cars going from let's say atlanta to savannah but they were using that as an example i believe so you know you want to uh and, and this is you know i can understand this um dana you know if you and i were thinking about going to savannah i mean i would look really i would really think seriously about driving instead of flying because by the time you get down to the airport go through security wait for your flight board the flight take the flight get into where you're going and then if you have to rent a car it's about you know you're not saving a heck of a lot of time if you just got in your car and drove anything less than 300 miles within the rain you know radius of here is about equal yeah. to doing exactly what you're talking and about. And then when you get there, you already have your car with you, so you don't have to rent a car, you know? So, right. I, you know, and, and we do that a lot in my family, and, and not only because of the, the distance, but also because we usually try to fly on standby, and a lot of times it's like, you're not going to get on the airplane anyway, so you might as well drive. But um, 
I think uh, I'd like to take, if I can reach for my uh, BS flag here, I'm going to wave it. I I think that this, this whole, basically what they're trying to say here in their survey is that driverless cars are going to disrupt the airline industry. I don't think so. I think that this is uh, much to do about nothing because I don't think that driverless cars are going to be a thing for quite a number of years. And even when they do become a thing, I, I'm not sure it's going to maybe make a slight disruption. Uh, disruption, I think, is a is too big of a word to use. Might, it, might may, it, it may draw a little bit of traffic away, a little, very yeah. little. But uh, you know, there was uh, you know, I don't know if anybody knows, well, anybody in the states would know World News Tonight or uh, NBC News, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But they had a video of a guy that was in traffic in L.A. dead asleep for thirty miles behind one of those one of those cars that drives themselves that's really not good good promotion for those types of vehicles because uh, it's brilliant (laughs) let me just take a nap behind the wheel it's really not designed to do it like that i think one of the early uh, accidents in the um in the tesla um involved a guy that was watching a movie or something and ended up uh crashing into a car that made a left you know opposite direction left-hand turn right in front of it or for you all in the in the uk or right-hand turn <laughs> you know what i'm saying opposite direction kind of turning right in front of you and the car was going at like 80 miles an hour and um didn't because of the conditions and i think there was an 18 wheeler which is a, a what, what what do they call those in uh, the uk a lorry uh, yeah. a big truck um and something to do with the way the cameras you know, we're analyzing the situation at the time and uh, the car didn't see any problem with this other car, like darting right in front of them. And it just broadsided that other car and this guy died because he was watching some movie on his uh, laptop or something in his car, because, you know, this driverless car was going to uh, do just fine. Keep him all nice and safe. Nope. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, we're talking in the future here and I'm just kind of hoping that the people uh, in the, uh, airport industry will come up with uh, a similar level of technology that allows driverless cars to streamline security, improve boarding, uh, and make the whole airport process so much more uh, simple, efficient, and enjoyable. Because that is the big thing for me. It's uh, it's the complete hassle of getting through the airport. And right. if you can build a driverless car, then for heaven's sake, can't we uh, get some better technology into our security and streamline the system? And I know they're going that way with face recognition so that you just do one check and from then on, as you progress through the airport, you're automatically recognized and allowed access to the places you should be allowed access to, which sounds great. We just need that to progress a lot faster. And get into every airport i agree and now what now the heck with driverless cars what about all those uh those uh vertical you know like the big giant drones that carry people you know that's going to be faster and more efficient than a driverless car right it'll be much it's not going to happen either (laughs) the environmental control on those things is amazing too yeah yeah okay i want my flying car Okay, uh, item three or C, uh, Indian man imprisoned for life after a fake plane hijack. An Indian businessman has been jailed for life after planting a fake hijacking letter in the toilet of a Jet Airways flight from Delhi to Mumbai. How could anybody see if he put it in the toilet? Well, they found the one that was in the toilet of one of my aircraft without any problem. Well, see, because we say the toilet is the actual device where you urinate and defecate. (laughs) 
Well, but, but if I know you're, you're looking, if you're looking down to make sure you're hosing in a straight line, I suppose you could spot it. Ah, <laughs> as long as somebody hasn't flushed it. Yes. But exactly. what would be the point of flushing the letter if you're trying to get somebody's attention? Well, anyway, I'm sorry. Good I'm off point. Track there. Uh, so it was probably on the on the counter next to the sink, the lavatory sink. Um, Berju Salah said he had hoped the air carrier were, would close its Delhi operations, and his girlfriend, a Jet Airways air stewardess, would have to move to live with him in Mumbai. That's some really smart thinking there. Wow. Yeah, this, this <laughs> way out of the box thinking. <laughs> He yeah. thought that one hijacking was going to close down Delhi operations and his girlfriend would have to move to live with him in Mumbai. You, you remember what I mentioned earlier about, you know, getting a big doobie and lighting it up? Yeah, I think yeah, he must have Obviously, been doing that. he's do, already doing that. <laughs> he was also fined 50 million rupees, which is about $1.50. No, it's uh, <laughs> not much more than that. <laughs> it's $720. Uh, 720,000. Oh, 725. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that is a lot of money. Sorry. Yeah, that is, that is quite a, well, like there three goes, quarters of a million dollars. Oh, well, my joke. <laughs> there goes my joke. It did. <laughs> it went down the toilet with that bomb warning. <laughs> uh, Salah is the first person to be tried under India's new anti-hijacking laws. The legislation carries a minimum sentence of life imprisonment ooh, and a death sentence at its most severe. Woo. They, they are not fooling around there. No, they're, they're not. not. Dang. Uh, he confessed to writing and printing the threat note in his Mumbai office before catching the flight in October of, oh, this was back in 2017. It said 12 hijackers and several explosives were on board and demanded that the flight be diverted into Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Uh, he was arrested at the, after the plane made an emergency landing in um, Ahmedabad, uh, Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad. Ahmed, Ahmed, 483 miles from its intended destination. At the time, he was having an extramarital affair with an air stewardess from Delhi. Anyway, you get the point here. This guy was obviously off his rocker. That's a hell of a uh, punishment there. Three quarters of a million uh, dollars and a life imprisonment for... Now off, they, take, they take it. Yeah, they take it seriously over there. Obviously, yeah. Wow, that was a, an interesting one. Okay, so that should be yeah, good. Thing this is a family show because a whole bunch of comments they could have just yeah. Come up I'm with. glad it is. Well, yep. yeah. I'm I mean, not saying one word. <laughs> all I'm going to say is that uh, on a serious note, uh, an airline gets multiple um, bomb warning threats a month. Most airlines. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if every one of those was investigated and uh, they found the culprit, uh, there could be an awful lot of people with life sentences wandering around in, uh, in various countries. Yes. Last item, uh, Boeing's latest 737 MAX concern, pilots' physical strength. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, efforts to get Boeing's uh, 737 MAX airliner, jetliners back into the air have been delayed in part by concerns about whether the average pilot has enough physical strength to manually crank a flight control wheel in extreme emergencies. The concerns have made the wheel and its crank used to move the horizontal stabilizer or on the plane's tail, the focus of engineering analysis. Simulator sessions and flight testing by the plane maker and U.S. air safety officials, according to people familiar with the details. Um, oh, I thought that sentence was going somewhere else. The extent of the internal debate hasn't been previously reported. Use of the crank the manually the manually activated uh, method of 
trimming the pitch on the 737 and other Boeing airplanes like the 727. I remember that. Um, let's see. Uh, to adjust it can help change the angle of the plane's nose. Yeah, sort of. Under certain conditions, including at unusually high speeds with the panel already at a steep angle, moving the crank can take a lot of force. Among other things, the people familiar with the details said regulators are concerned about whether female aviators who typically have less upper body strength than their male counterparts may find it difficult to turn the crank in an emergency. Uh, the analysis could have been un, uh, even have even wider significance because the same emergency procedure applies to the generation of the jetliner that preceded the MAX, known as the 737 New Generation NG. About 6,300 of these planes are used by more than 150 airlines globally, and they are the backbone of short and medium-range fleets for many carriers. Okay, so, uh, and again, uh, the guy, uh, the Blancalirio channel, um, uh, Juan... I uh, can't remember his last name right off the hand. Um, uh, anyway, he uh, does a really good job of explaining this in one of his videos. Again, you should uh, subscribe to his video channel uh, where he talks about the mechanics of how this works. And uh, one of the problems uh, with the Ethiopian accident is that after the pilots set takeoff power, and in this case it was 94% N1, they left that power setting. They never pulled the power back. It, it stayed at takeoff power the entire six-minute flight, uh, including when it just went right down into the ground, nosedived into the nosedived into the ground. And the, one of the problems with the procedure of using manual trim to try to retrim the airplane is that the faster you go, the more air loads are on that stabilizer, and you get to the point where that mechanical wheel, you, there, nobody. I mean, I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever the big bodybuilder person is these days uh if you have an amazing amount of arm strength or upper body strength you're not going to be able to move that you have to slow the airplane down you have to somehow get the airplane to a lower level the air loads off the stabilizer to actually move that manual trim uh, wheel and uh the other thing that's interesting uh and again blancolirio talked about this uh is that the the size the diameter of that wheel has um, ha, over the generations of 737s has decreased in size. And so, as we all know from just basic mechanics, uh, physics, uh, you you know, the, the arm, the motion, the moment arm, whatever, uh, it's easier if it's a longer arm. So if you have a smaller diameter wheel that you're, you have a little handle that cranks out and you're trying to crank that thing, the harder it's going to be. More force is going to be required to have the same action. And uh, in the 727, I remember that wheel is a pretty darn big wheel. Uh, and I guess the 737, it kind of shrank a little bit or shrunk. And then the uh, latest Max, it even shrunk further. And uh, I think they're really taking a good look at whether or not that's sufficient to handle a situation, even if you have the air loads down to a reasonable level. So they're, that's what the regulators uh, are are looking at right now. And so some people might think that this is um, like again denigrating female pilots and and uh, and I don't think that's what the point of this is it's just basically um one of those things where in general um you compare a, a same size male to a same size female age etc uh in general the upper body strength is going to be a little bit greater the capacity for that strength is greater in a male although I have flown with uh some first officers other pilots that um I don't think 
probably would have that much upper body strength. In fact, I know somebody like uh, somebody who uh, is a strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, marathon runner, skydiver. Yeah, you all know her, Dr. Steph. I know that she her upper body strength, I'm sure, is a lot more than a lot of the people that I've flown with. And so that's not to say anything against female pilots, but it's just something that they're they're taking a look at. Basically, the 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 strength uh, power required to actually manually activate that manual trim wheel in the Boeing product. Uh, but again, in the case of the Ethiopian thing, I don't care how strong you are, uh, or you would not be been able to um, trim manually trim or move that wheel. It would have been like cement. And Nick and I were talking about this before we recorded the show today. I asked him if there was, you know, in the Airbus family, um, especially talking about the upper body, there's really nothing that requires a lot of strength, is there? No, no you need a bit of uh, leg strength if you're holding uh, two dead engines and you haven't trimmed it. Uh so, but no, I uh, no, we, we are in upper body, none at all. And, and there's, to my knowledge, there's never been a test required for any airliner on physical strength. Uh, so it's not like it's a medical requirement to pass. Uh, you'd only ever find, find out if you were in the simulator and the simulator accurately um, uh, demonstrated exactly the forces that you're going to get on, the, on this trim wheel. Uh, in the circumstances that they were in. Uh, I think you covered that very well and very fairly, Jeff. I think so. I mean, it's not to say anything against, uh, like, oh, you know, because of this, I don't think that females should be allowed to fly the 737 product, which is no. not what I'm saying. No. Uh, but it's something that they're taking a look at. And then this reminds me of airliners of, of the past. Uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is the DC-8. Uh, that airplane, I never flew it myself, but I've heard from other people that have, that they said that you, it, the controls on that were not like flying an airplane with power steering. I mean, you had to, uh, and I hate to use the term manhandle, but you had to really use a lot of upper body strength to even turn the airplane and to activate the, uh, or you know, to climb and to descend when you're manually flying the airplane. It was it took a lot of physical strength, and the other thing that I recall requiring a lot of physical strength is on the 727 when we went to manual reversion. Uh, which is, is the state of the airplane when you lose all your hydraulics to your control surfaces. We used to do this on test flights after it's gone through some maintenance. Uh, you might get called in to go on a, um, a maintenance flight and go up for a couple of hours. And what some of the things that we would do is like shut down engines, restart engines. We'd go to manual reversion. And let me tell you, having actually flown a 727 to manual reversion, it was not easy. And, and I, was much stronger than I am now. And I was having a heck of a time trying to keep that airplane straight and level uh, because of the fact that there wasn't any hydraulics to the, hy the hydraulically controlled surfaces. So, um, and the 141, another airplane that did require quite a bit of strength to uh, move the controls. Um, so, you know, it's, I think in today's world with today's modern airliners, unless you're in a, an emergency or abnormal situation like this 737 MAX thing, um, it's not, I don't think that big of a, a necessity to have, you know, very high, uh, physical strength in your upper body. That's just my, Hey Jeff. Yeah. You just summed it up. First off on our airplane, where is our manual trim wheel? 
We don't have a manual trim. Right. So the 737 and everything you just pointed out, the, the 727, the uh, DC-8 and everything else, uh, it just proves just proves one point. The 737 has not been redesigned and it's very antiquated. I think it should be a more of a modern design that uh, they don't need to have a, you know, a elevated trim wheel, but, you know, they just haven't taken it to the next level. What they've done is they've just played with the, the original design and tried to make it a better airplane, and unfortunately they haven't. And that is Dana at AirlinePilotGuy.com <laughs> for all your complaints. Um, that's one perspective, one opinion. Um, yeah, so. It's not, it's not a popular opinion, but, yeah. I, you know, I just, it's the way I feel about it. Yeah, well, I don't think they're going to be designing anything different in the airplane until the 737s are all not flying anymore. So, you know, I'm not sure what the uh, 767, 757, 777, 787 systems are like if they have that same kind of redundant mechanical backup kind of trim system. And again, it's a it's a backup system. It's not a primary uh, pitch trim system. So, um, you know, I, I think I'd rather have a manual backup system um, than nothing at all, like our airplane. <laughs> But, oh, we, we do have backups in our airplane now. Well, we do, but it's not a mechanical backup per se. No, it's the only part of our airplane. It's not a direct cable. Yep. So, yeah, we could talk about this for hours, but uh, good points made. And uh, just thought we'd mention that, uh, that article. But again, I've flown with several female pilots that uh, probably have more upper body strength than I have. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I think that's enough from our news folder. Oh, you know what? Just quickly, I, I noticed something right before we started recording the show I thought was kind of amusing, and it was a, an article. Let's see. Let me grab it here. This is from the Business Insider, um, and unfortunately, it's United Airlines again. Um, uh, it says, in 2006, we got snakes on a plane. The film, in 2019, we get ants on a plane. The reality for some passengers on a recent United Airlines flight Apparently, I, on Monday, a swarm of ants crawled out of a passenger's carry-on bag and caused quite the com commotion on a United Airlines flight. Reports of the ants on the flight to Newark from Venice began to circulate after Charlotte Burns, a senior editor in at, in other words, described her experience in a thread on Twitter. Uh, she said that uh, ants spill out, running in every which direction. This is absolutely heebie-jeebie, goose-bumpy, get-me-a-gin-gross. <laughs> she wrote uh, of the moment of discovery in a statement provided to Insider, a United Airlines spokesperson said that the ants were contained to a limited area of the cabin. But according to NBC New York, the bugs traveled throughout the aircraft, even reaching first class. <gasps> the airplane landed at Newark and has been taken out of service for extermination. I think they mean bug extermination, not the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, let's see, United said in the statement, we followed proper protocol by notifying customs, immigration, as well as agriculture of the illegal immigrant ants. No, they didn't say that. Actually, I added that. Um, so wouldn't that be fun? Some, somewhere in flight, all of a sudden, you look down and you're being swarmed by a bunch of ants. I guess they're not, they weren't fire ants. That would be a big problem. But uh, these ants, I don't think were biting type of ants. All right, that's it. I think now. So it's, long as they don't get in your pants. Yeah. Yes, that's you don't want ants in the pants. pants. <laughs> <laughs> that could be very uncomfortable. All right, 
With that, it's time for one of the best parts of their show, which is your great feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with the first piece of feedback, and this is some audio feedback from our good friend, Miami Hick. This is Miami Hick. A little bit of feedback on some feedback and some news stories from the past couple of shows. Uh, I hate to point out when y'all are wrong, but y'all got something way wrong when y'all was talking about those signs that say that uh, traffic laws are enforced by aircraft. Uh, and I was disappointed. Captain Jeff ought to know this. Uh, how that works is the Mad Dog pilots are supposed to look down while they're up in the air flying. If they look down and see a car passing them on the road, they're supposed to uh, call that in. But they did away with it because all you got to do is like 50 to pass a mad dog while it's flying so uh, y'all got that wrong and uh there was a news story about the hitting the hitting the button for the emergency exit and they thought they was going to the bathroom you know i did that one time too i was drunk and i had to go to the bathroom and i, I accidentally hit hit the emergency exit and uh emergency slide popped out and let's just say i turned that thing into a slip and slide i enjoyed it but passengers that followed me down the slide and weren't too happy with me and oh it was so embarrassing because all the passengers just couldn't believe their captain would act that way but you know i was drunk what do you want me to do and uh that news story about the 105 year old that took a flying lesson the first thing i thought when i heard that was i thought captain nick already knew how to fly i'm a hick over and out <laughs> i added the rim shots He's very even-handed with his yeah, uh, I like the way sideways he kind of, compliments. Although, I don't know. I always seem to get the short end of the stick, so to speak. <laughs> so that's always a – I love it. Thank you very much, uh, Brent, for uh, sending that in. Always great to have some good humor from you. This one didn't have any, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have some that are funny. No, I'm just kidding. That was funny. Uh, item number two. Uh, this is from – Anonymous. Uh, hello, APG crew. I listened with interest to the segment on dot com call signs in episode 375. I thoroughly enjoy electronically spotting aircraft in my area and have learned quite a bit about aviation in the process. I've spotted over 40,000 unique aircraft in the last two years and typically spot around 2,500 flights a day. Wow. That's a lot of flights. Uh, I had not previously heard about the DCM call signs. But as you surmised, the obfuscation is not effective for those who are using their own equipment to receive ADSB signals. All ADSB transmissions contain a six-character code that uniquely identifies an aircraft. This is true worldwide. In the U.S. and many other countries, it's trivial to correlate this code with the aircraft registration. The aircraft call sign is also transmitted with the ADSB out and would typically have the aircraft registration number for a private aircraft. Replacing this with a DCM call sign does not prevent one from identifying the aircraft from the six-character code. On the other hand, if you wish to track aircraft using one of the online web services, this is effective for disguising your identity. Of course, I have a I have limited area, or I'm sorry, let me try that again. Of course, I have a limited area in which I can spot airplanes, typically up to 220 nautical miles. But ironically, the use of a DCM or .com call sign, now that I'm aware of it, would tend to put an aircraft on my radar. 
pun intended. Very clever. Anonymous, thank you for that uh, little bit of uh, feedback from an expert plane spotter. Very cool. That's a lot of flights. I'm, I'm assuming he doesn't physically spot them. In other words, use uh, a pair of binoculars to read off the registration. I'm guessing this is sort of a form of electronic spotting. I think so, yeah, using the uh, ADS-B uh, setup that he has. Yeah, and uh, I guess that that is also very true because I've got a friend up the road who does a similar sort of thing. He feeds uh, um, the ADS-B into the system of uh, Flight Radar 24, I think, mm-hmm. and he gets the uh, unadulterated, the the raw data. So uh, so that would be unaffected. It is interesting, though, isn't it? Yeah, because I don't think it's encrypted. I think it's no. uh, unencrypted, just like our ACARS messages and other things that we send down to Terra. Which I've always found a bit strange. I would have assumed it would have been pretty well protected, but there you go. I guess when they came up with the technology, at least for the uh, like ACARS, nobody ever dreamed that anybody would be you know, hacking and listening to or intercepting these messages. But uh, Yeah, good point. Yeah, not the world that we're living in today. Uh, item three... Stephen writes, or does he send in some audio feedback? He sends in some audio feedback, and let's play it. Hey, APG Cruz, FO Stephen here. Um, heard my name mentioned last week during the news segment um, regarding the uh, um, CRJ issue with not having GPS signal and all that. Um, I was fortunate enough not to be working when this first happened, uh, but the company I worked for sent out a lot of uh, bulletins regarding what was going on and what all uh, was going on with the fleet. Uh, so I've got some information I'm going to share with you and then uh, what we're doing to help uh, mitigate this issue. Um, well, my company specifically, I don't know what everybody else is doing. I would hope they'd be doing the same thing. But uh, so here is what um, was supposedly the issue that is causing um, the GPS problem with the CRJ. So last week, U.S. government sent out the regularly scheduled Almanac update with the leap second included. Following the Almanac update, affected GPS units weren't able to track satellites in the GPS constellation. Uh, Collins determined that a software issue with certain transponder FMS GPS receiver equipment slash softwares did not we're unable to interpret the leap second update that occurs every two and a half years uh, by the U.S. government GPS satellite almanac update. Um, so basically, most, if not almost all, of the uh, CRJs that have this certain transponder slash FMS combination, um, the software that was currently installed on them were, did not interpret the leap second update correctly which basically means they're not able to track the satellites. Um, so this caused basically the aircraft not to have a GPS signal. Now, um, for my company, um, we have a couple different combinations when it comes to um, how we've got our FMS and transponders with ADS-B set up. M- most of the 200 series aircraft still have the um, older FMS transponder combinations, so it's still, uh, those still work by what I understand. Um, now, the newer, the 2, 7, and 900 series that have the updated FMS and transponders with ADSB functionality in them, 
those are the ones that are having an issue. Now, um, the ones that do have the dual FMS in them, and um, the company that I worked for was able to basically disable one of them, and then they are changing out the software slash transponders to allow for GPS to work how it's supposed to without that, you know, the accept the new update. So basically we have, um, the last I heard, there were all but like 50 of our CRJ aircraft that hadn't been uh, modified uh, to be able to operate uh, with just the single uh, GPS signal. Um, and there's a bunch of little details about how we uh, did that uh, that I'm not going to go into. But um, basically, uh, if you do have an aircraft that hasn't been updated, they were directing you to uh, revert the FMS back to the um, an auto-tuning mode. And that basically uh, uses um, VOR, DME signals to uh, navigate off of. So essentially what the uh, MD-88 does with its uh, RNAV triangulation of the um, VORs and DMEs. So I'm still able to navigate, um, which is a good thing. I uh, I did work this weekend. Um, I had a three-day trip. Uh, the first two days, all my aircraft had already been updated, so there wasn't really an issue with them. Um, per the uh, note we had from the company that we did put everything in the auto anyway, just in case the GPS signal was lost, um, we wouldn't have an issue. Um, the last day, though, I had the last plane we had uh, had not been updated, so we were strictly VOR DME, which posed a couple different issues. Uh, one, um, you can't do any kind of RNAV arrival, departure, or uh, approaches. So, reminding ATC that we're not able to do those, um, do those types of uh, arrivals, departures, and stuff. And then um, it also it's basically a degraded navigation, so not as accurate, um, which can cause issues if you're um, in airspace. But um, when when we took off. Um, it had the system automatically knew where it was at once we engaged um, the togas and everything like it's supposed to. Uh, and then once we got going, I was hand flying and I went to um, intercept our course out, joined it, and once we got going, we got the autopilot on. The um, plane kind of fished, so it was going right, left, right, left, trying to find out you know, find itself where it was at and everything based off of the VOR it was reading off of. And it finally got that. Um, so it, it, it was doing fine, but the whole flight, it kind of, it would drift a little bit side to side. Um, it wasn't, you know, just straight level, no movement like I, I'm usually used to. Um, and then the other thing was uh, when uh, ATC was, you know, giving you directions or clearances. They give you a lot of um, intercepts. So they give you a VOR to intercept your radial off of, and then uh, you have to throw that in the FMS and, you know, figure out the intercept and all that. So, But uh, other than that, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, 
I know the bulletin they put out to us, um, there are been some issues um, where the FMS is confused in which mode it needs to be in, so it'll be in a heading mode or approach mode instead of the navigation mode, and it uh, requires you to kind of reset itself and all that, but um, that's really the only thing I've heard um, aside from some people taking it upon themselves trying to figure out how to fix the issue the first couple days um, uh, before the company kind of uh, figured out what was going on I had a buddy uh, they let the flying green needles which is strictly a heading off of a navigational uh, radio uh, frequency and they uh, got off pretty good bit um, while they were in cruise, but they, they tracked it back in and resolved that. Um, but uh, other than that, that's all I've got for you regarding this GPS Collins issue. Um, also, it doesn't give us a time frame of when everything will be back to normal. So anyway, hope that is uh, some good information for everybody that was wondering what exactly the problem was. And uh, hope everybody's doing okay. Talk to you later. Thanks, Stephen, for the input. You know, as we said... There's got to be somebody out there that listens to our show. We knew that it was Stephen that would send us some audio feedback regarding that. And uh, one of the most recent things that I read regarding this whole thing, they did correct the almanac or uh, put the updated almanac uh, to the satellite array, uh, taking care of that leap second. And uh, the Rockwell Collins people said that that fixed about 50 to 60% of the units out there, <laughs> which still leaves a lot of units, units that have not been fixed and now they have to actually send the unit physically send the units to Rockwell Collins for them to fix them. So they'll work right uh, in, into the future. So that's going to be, that's going to have a major impact on airplane fleets out there that use this uh, Rockwell Collins. Uh, what do they call it? The uh, 4,000 GPS 4,000 S. Yeah, a, certainly. It's an interesting uh, progression in these navigation systems. Uh, the uh, the aircraft I flew uh, before GPS used to um, input all the various uh, forms of navigation uh, into a filter, a Kármán filter, which would uh, give a, a level of accuracy um, to each, whether it be an NDB, DME, uh, which is the most accurate, or VOR uh, angles. Uh, and then it would apply the errors that the inertial navigation system were building up over time uh, and filter that and produce an aircraft position, which was a combination of all those things. And if one of those systems dropped out, like you weren't in range of DME, then uh, it would use the next best and if everything fell out, then you were just on pure uncorrected inertial. But all the errors that had been uh, noticed on your inertial systems during the flight would continue to be applied. So it wouldn't suddenly say, right, well, the inertial's correct. It would still apply the bias. Now, when GPS was introduced, that obviously gave you another input into that uh, algorithm, that uh, navigation computer, uh, which was obviously the most accurate. Um so it was just another way, but the bias for GPS was very high. Now, it, it surprises me a little bit just listening to Steve's comments that take the GPS out of the route, out of the system, there should still be sufficient navigation aids in there to give you an accurate position. And I don't understand why the aircraft should hunt 
uh, why it should find, uh, uh, you know, it should be following perhaps um, the slight variations in a VOR needle or something. So that bit, I'm not too sure why it would be doing that. Well, I flew an airplane for many years of my career, 10 to be exact, the 727. They did not have a flight management system or flight uh, uh, management computer, and it didn't have RNAV capability either. We used VOR uh, DME uh, courses, and we used our chart and said, okay, this is the crossover point, so this is the radial that we fly out, and at this point, uh, we move over to the next navigational aid and put that inbound course in. And now you could, on that airplane, when the autopilot was connected, uh, hook up, uh, v- like track the VOR course. But it did that, you know, hunting, as you talked about. It, it never, it didn't fly a nice straight track. It was just always seeking because those ground-based navigational signals don't always you know, give you a nice clean signal. Sometimes they very, just like an ILS and they, uh, so what we would do was we'd never connect the, the VOR, uh, tracking, uh, feature. We would always use heading. So we were always constantly making minute adjustments to our heading based on the winds to keep on the, uh, course. And that provided for a nice, solid, smooth flight for everybody on the airplane. So there was none of this, you know, wandering around kind of thing, trying to find the signal. Uh, and it, another thing it did was it really kept you in the game. You always knew where you were. And if you didn't, air traffic control would ask where the heck you are, uh, what you're doing, where you're going, why are you not turning, that kind of thing. They were always watching us on radar. Uh, so, uh, you know, you you always knew where the wind winds were coming from because you were always making those little slight corrections with your heading in, in heading select mode. So that those are the old days of flying uh, ancient navigation system airplanes. And I think that maybe uh, today's pilots that are not used to flying that kind of navigation system, and when they are in a situation like Stevens airline is uh, with those faulty unit or not faulty units, but the, the situation they were in uh, have never experienced that. And that's why maybe he was kind of bewildered why the airplane wasn't giving you a nice straight, um, yeah, track. very good point. Pip in the uh, chat room says, uh, without a GPS, uh, his aircraft is totally lost. <laughs> yeah, doesn't Oops. it also affect like the some other systems in the airplane? We were talking about uh, some of the GPS interference things and specifically certain airplanes, some corporate airplanes out there that use GPS for stabilization or something uh, can go out of control or something ridiculous. It is bonkers. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he'll clarify. But yes, you're yeah. right. Uh, it, I, I, I personally think that airplanes should have multiple layers of uh, degradation so that you, if you lose one system, the thing should be perfectly able to operate on something else. Because yeah. otherwise, it's not a very commercially viable aircraft. If your entire fleet suddenly gets grounded because there's a GPS output, how are you going to make money? You need to have an airplane. You're not. That, yeah, exactly. You need it just on a commercial footing. You need to have an aircraft that can operate uh, on a downgraded system. Can Makes you kind of shake can, your head, right? Can the Airbus do that, Nick? Yeah, of course. Okay. I, I thought it could. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, not, I mean, I'm not insulting I said, you. Know, I, I thought it could. Yeah, the GPS is just one input to uh, the navigation system. Uh, and Jonathan in the chat room says, yep, when I was at NetJets, we would lose our entire 
Phenom fleet when the Navy was messing with the GPS system. Oops. Yeah, that's not good. Do they charge the Navy when that happens? <laughs> well, you, they're either going to shoot you down or mess up your, mess <laughs> yeah. your navigation system. Oops. <laughs> yeah, don't go near that shit, mate. Oh, hey, speaking of degradated and degradated. Wow, what kind of word was that? Degraded. It's, a, it's an American word. Yeah. Degraded systems. Now, you're the ones that add the extra syllables. <laughs> syllables. Syllables. Yeah. Syllables. Um, so one of the things that happened when I came to the uh, airport this morning in Little Rock, uh, before I even got to the gate, um, a mechan- two mechanics were there walking toward me and looking right at me. And I'm thinking, well, this is not good. <laughs> they don't n- normally seek you in the concourse itself as you're walking toward the gate. And I go, yeah. Um, so... So let's say, hypothetically, you have an airplane that you're supposed to fly to Atlanta that we've been here to fix overnight, but we couldn't because the local contracted uh, ramp workers here uh, didn't bother to come in to escort us to the airplane so we could fix your airplane. And the problem is this airplane has – our airplane has two autopilots, and they're both not working. So basically, it means that we don't have autopilots. And I said, well, if you're asking me if I'm willing to take the airplane to Atlanta without an autopilot, I said, yeah, I'd love it, actually. That would be a lot of fun. And they kind of looked at me a little bit strangely, like a lot of people do. And uh, he said, so you don't have a problem with flying the airplane without an autopilot? I said, no. So, okay. And I uh, talked to the dispatcher and he said, oh, it was like a sigh of relief. Oh, thank God. Um, yeah, good. I got you at 27,000 feet because we can't go into the RVSM airspace without an autopilot. At least you're not supposed to. And uh, so we flew to Atlanta and uh, flew the whole way. It was only a one hour and two minute flight from takeoff to landing in Atlanta. A little bit longer because we went, uh, we were landing west. And uh, it, uh, it reminded me uh, how much concentration and how nice it is to have an autopilot, especially when you're cruising up at higher altitudes. Although the, I think the Mad Dog is probably the easiest airplane that I've flown to fly at altitude. I mean, the 727 and the L-1011 especially were really difficult to, they're very sensitive up at uh, the higher altitudes to keep right on your altitude. You know, you'd vary 50 feet, maybe 100 feet, then back around. But the Mad Dog, if you have it all trimmed up properly, um, pretty much is pretty solid and it was pretty easy to do. But just the things like, you know, putting your shoulder straps on, your shoulder harnesses and doing things like that when you're hand flying an airplane is is uh is much more difficult um especially when you know you're up at altitude or you're the higher levels where just a a couple of moments not touching the controls can lead the airplane to start you know banking or you know getting off course or exceeding the descent rate that you want whatever so but anyway it was a lot of fun and i'm glad that i got a chance to do that i normally i would do that a lot more often honestly if it didn't mean to it wasn't so much work for the person who is monitoring because that is a lot of work when you you are in a situation like this and the pilot monitoring has to really constantly monitor everything um, a lot more than they normally do when the autopilot's flying if that makes sense so oh absolutely yeah I mean it, it uh, I couldn't imagine a problem uh, operating without an autopilot except for the the problems you you stated uh, there a space where you physically can't take your aircraft without one right. I I flown a, uh, a 340 all the way back from Hong Kong without auto thrust. And it's not the same, obviously, uh, because uh, the airplane's still maintaining its attitude and altitude and heading, etc. Um, but one of you has to be continually on the controls because you can't 
even just for a short while, ignore what the aircraft is doing. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it does take uh, a lot more concentration. You just, you just physically, you can't really even have a meal without putting the other guy in control of the aircraft. Right. You can't do anything. So, uh, uh, you know, you, it was actually considerably more tiring, and that's just an autothrust problem, let alone an autopilot problem. Right. Yeah, um, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I'm with you, Jeff. I mean, the uh, the opportunity to fly the airplane, hand fly the airplane, I, I spend a lot of time even in climb and descent um, mm -hmm. normally just hand flying the airplane. So the opportunity to fly it the whole way, it, unless it's a high workload environment, i.e. if you went into, into the northeast, you're going to do it for two, three hours. I, mean, I might think otherwise, but on a short flight like that, absolutely, it, it's, it's, uh, it's an absolute joy to fly that airplane by hand. Yeah. Nico says he flies a 7.3, I believe. Uh, I, I believe the 7.3, 7.2s are a little bit harder to fly up at altitude than my experience with the uh, with the Mad Dog. And the other thing, to Nick's point, regarding the autothrust system, we had an airplane on the first day of our trip, and it was uh, my first officer's leg, and he kind of goes, oh, now I know why you wanted me to fly this leg. Of course, I had no idea that the airplane we were going to fly didn't have autothrust. And I said, I'll fly it if you want to, because I said, if you'd noticed, I that's kind of the way I fly the airplane a lot <laughs> with the auto throttle system off. And he goes, no, no, I'd, I'd like to do it. And I said, okay. And he said, just remind me that when we get up to cruise to pull the power back. And I said, okay. And sure enough, we, we got up to cruise and we're also used to the auto thrust system, you know, pulling the, the thrust levers back to adjust the speed and not go right through your, you know, maximum Mach. And uh, it, the airplane started accelerating, started accelerating. I said, hey, the throttles. They go, oh, yeah. See, I told you. Told you to remind me. I knew this was going to happen. But, you know, you're not used to doing that. Uh, it's just it's not something that is uh, natural. All right. Um, so anything else to say about backup navigation systems, satellite systems, hand flying, all that kind of stuff? Or should we move on to... Ivor's feedback. I think we probably covered that. Okay. Uh, item four, Ivor. Um, so the, there's a hello, all you APG podcast presenter types. So the vexed question of passengers bringing bags of the aircraft in an emergency situation, what do we do? Uh, Armando on the outstanding PTUK podcast made a fair point about passenger behavior in stressful situations. So I think we, or should that be the airline industry, needs to be needs to change people's behavior for their own good. And a good starting point would be, would be to put it into the pre-flight safety demonstration. No luggage to be taken off the aircraft in emergency evacuation. Also, put it on the safety cards. I think it would take years, but eventually it might seep into the flying public's thick skulls. Obviously, a major problem with this is that the average dim-witted passenger ignores the safety talk video, but it is a serious problem. My overriding worry is that I'm in an emergency situation. I studiously leave my carry-on bag in the overhead bin, make my way to the nearest exit, slide down the emergency slide, and just as I reach the bottom, thinking all is well, I receive a concussion-inducing blow to my head from a high-quality hard-shell case. And yes, the person behind me is safe, but also has access to personal belongings. Hurrah. Yours, a slightly concerned Ivor. May your chemtrails be fruitful. Um, I believe, and Dana, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the ACME safety briefing does, I don't know if it's always included the, the sentences in there that say, do not 
take your carry-on luggage with you in an evacuation, uh, or if it's something that has just recently been added, I can't really say with uh, surety. But uh, one of the last it. one of the last times I was on and I was listening to the uh, the briefing, and I believe it does say it in our cards as well. Uh, it do, it does mention that, and maybe it's maybe they've been saying it for years. And I just hadn't noticed it, and that's that's not a good thing, right? You know, yeah. Maybe um, nobody notices it. Pr- probably, like most regular flyers that are out there, fly all the time. Uh, you know, if you were to ever sit in the cabin and look to see who's paying attention, mm-hmm. usually not too many people are. Unfortunately, no. You're so right. It's 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 uh, it, it, the the announcement's so. Uh, um, repeated or it, it's it's mundane and it's it's mm-hmm. it's continuously the same uh, message over and over and over that people that have you know that fly on a fairly regular basis you know kind of brush it off i think yes and, you know i i hate to say it but uh, i'm part of that crowd no you know. well you know it's like one of those things where you hear it over and over and over again it's hard to like pay attention to it right right yeah so it's, it's repetitive i think that's the right word repetitive now, you know, a lot of airlines in the last few years have been trying to get really cutesy with the uh, safety briefings in an effort to make people pay attention. But then I think it's maybe gone too far in the, the wrong direction and people are not really getting anything out of it except entertainment, <laughs> not, not really paying attention to the really serious yeah, issue. Yeah, that's one of Nick's pet peeves. Yeah. Nick? Okay. Nick's Ooh, pet peeves. <laughs> Sorry, not quite there, but yeah. I'll have I, to th- make thank one you for you. the, thank you for the attempt. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I, I agree with uh, you, Dana. I think uh, you know it needs to be emphasised. We need to make a particular point of it, uh, and I also very much agree with Dana's um, idea that uh, we should be allowing um, cargo hold baggage on the aircraft free and charging for um, overhead bags. Because that would, um, you know, put more luggage into the cargo bay and give us less of a problem. Uh, but there you go. I think it's a great idea. All right, yeah. I, I mean, thank you for, for that endorsement, Nick. I think it would be a fantastic idea because, uh, you know, it's it's going to el- eliminate, uh, of course, the biggest threat, and that's a safety threat, um, either when pa- passengers are stowing or pulling bags out, um, hitting other people, and or, you know, in the case of an emergency, obviously. Uh, you know, evacuating the airplane as we saw that Russian uh, Russian incident, right? So, uh, you know, far less bags on the airplane equals, uh, you know, and if it's just a small carry-on like what most people carry, like a computer bag or or such, uh, you know, that's going underneath the seat or it takes up a whole lot less room in the overhead. So, you know, in God forbid, in, in case of an emergency evacuation, um, people trying to grab their rollerboards, I mean, you know, people are not going to listen. I'm thinking, you know, logically, if somebody's going to grab something, they grab their, you know, their computer bag underneath their seat as they're running off the airplane. It's going to take them microseconds to do that versus the seconds it takes them to go ahead and grab a rollerboard from the overhead bin. So I'm not endorsing people doing that, obviously, but people that don't listen and are going to insist upon taking their personal property off the airplane, if it's checked in the, in, in the bin, it, you know, in, underneath the airplane, they can't get to it. They're getting off the airplane, and whatever they grab is right there. It's real quick access. So, you know, it, it's multi, multi-faceted the reason why I think that we should be doing it completely opposite. Yeah. Good luck in convincing the people that yes, actually make those decisions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and of course there's the exception to the rule, and that is, you know, if you want to carry on, 
you can pay to carry on. Um, and you know, for, for the, the people that are high value, you know, HVCs, what we call them, high value customers that travel all the time, they you know, the, you know, uh, uh, high level frequent flyers, you know, certainly there are exceptions for them because they're, you know, they're on the airplane all the time. Of course, <laughs> unfortunately I hate to say it and no, no offense to anybody out there that is a high mileage flyer flyer, but in an emergency situ- situation, they're, they, they're the ones most likely probably going to reach for those bags. And probably did not listen to safety presentations. They've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. So speaking of carry-on luggage and uh, this whole situation, something related to it is, uh, let's say uh, somebody um, doesn't uh, have a, well, let me just play this audio feedback. I think that would be the best thing to do. This is from Brian Mos- uh, Brian from Katie. Uh, he sent us some audio feedback. It's in the uh, staging folder and uh, we're going to go, I'm, it, it just to me, it kind of relates to what we're talking about here. There's a concern of people about, you know, like having important things that they need to have near them. What do they do in a situation like this, you know, where, where you have a, an airplane uh, crash landing or whatever you want to call it. And so let me let Brian uh, tell us the situation. Hello, airline pilot guy crew. Um, this is Brian from Katy, and after listening to the um, evacuations and people taking carry-on luggage off the planes, um, I wanted to give another viewpoint of that. Uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I keep my medical supplies in my backpack that's underneath my uh, underneath the seat in front of me. Uh, so. If I have to evacuate, I will be taking that bag with me. I make a point not to carry it in the overhead bin so we don't have to slow down people um, to get all, if I had to if I had to evacuate. Um, I just feel that having my insulin uh, is something that's uh, very important to my continued survival. Uh, I just wanted to give you, get y'all's viewpoint to see if I should be doing something different. Uh, please uh, let me know. Uh, have a good day. Bye. Great question, Brian. Uh, and that's the reason why when people intend to take some carry-on luggage on, on board the airplane and they, have, they, they just can't get it on and they have to gate check it and put it underneath, that's why they always say, hey, if there's something important that you need, like medications, um, uh, what uh, batteries, lithium-ion batteries, um, you know, things that we don't want to be in your bag in the, in the cargo hold, you know, something that you may need to, to sustain your life. That's why they always say you need to take that out before we take it away from you and put it underneath. Yeah. And exactly I think what you're right. doing is right, you know, is, is the right thing to do. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I, I'm a great believer in having a, uh, I don't know, a, we, you call them a fanny pack. We call it a bum bag. Um, with your passport, some money, you know, your wallet, uh, and, you know, perhaps your phone and your medication because uh, you can strap that around your waist. It's not going to get in the way. You're never going to lose it, and it's always going to be there if you need to leave the aircraft in a hurry. Uh, so I think that's brilliant. Uh, in the future, of course, things like um, uh, insulin will probably be more often delivered by a, uh, a pump that's actually physically attached to your body all the time. Uh, and I know that technology is there, and but it continues to improve. And I think more and more people will uh, have that form of uh, insulin delivery. But there are plenty of other uh, medication style or many other 
illnesses that require uh, frequent medication of a different style. So that won't fix everything. But certainly, um, yeah, I think it's a great idea to have a small pack that you keep with you all the time, just in case. Uh, in the same way that um, whenever I'm on the approach or... Um, I, I, you know, after take off, I never take my shoes off and kick back until we're well airborne. Uh, and when we're on the approach, I have my shoes back on again because the last thing I want to do is to be trying to evacuate uh, and running through puddles of uh, flaming uh, fuel uh, without shoes on. Uh, do, you, so. do you bring out the fuzzy days of the air freshener when you do that? Yeah, I do. And I never wear my high heels on an aeroplane. Good advice. <laughs> You heard it here. You're not allowed to go down the slide in high heels. <laughs> it's always safety is first. Safety exactly. First. And one thing yeah. I'd like to add to that fanny pack list that people don't often think about is car keys. Yeah. That's something you don't I mean, ever want you know, to put in a Dana, band. how many times do we hear that? You know, people say, you know, they start panicking because they're diabetic and they have insulin or like something that they need to eat, you know, to keep the sugar levels, whatever. You, oh, did you not hear when we said take that stuff out of your bag? You know, we, we right. can't get to it now. We're in we're in flight. Um, yeah, people that's, just don't hear things that they should, I think. Well, that's because 10 out of 9 people check their brain at the door when they enter into an airport. Did I say that out loud? I think yeah, you just did. did. And yeah. I, I think actually it's, it's a bit unfair because I think their brain is forcibly removed by the airline. <laughs> I don't think they do it on purpose. Part of the security process through TSA. Yeah, I think that's what, that's what happens. It gets sucked out of them when they go through the uh, that archway. You know, the bonus about the fanny pack is it's very stylish. Can be if you have a nice big fanny. <laughs> All right. Again, uh, Liz, that's uh, from Brian, uh, Brian from Katie and the uh, staging folder. So uh, I thought it would be kind of it kind of tied in with uh, what we were talking about with uh, the carry on luggage scenario. Did. OK, so now let me see if I can find my place again. Oh, that was Ivor. Um, Steve are we the future. Are we close to uh, the two-hour point, Liz? Don't or think so. We... Okay. I'm close. Let's... Okay. Uh, let's do Steve Hurst's uh, feedback. Uh, Jeff, I have a question mainly for you, but I guess Nick will have some useful insights on this too. Probably not. No. Uh, you have been on the – I'm just kidding. He... I added that. Uh, you have been on the Mad Dog for a very long time, and I always wonder how – attached pilots become to the equipment they fly with only a few years left before your retirement. Have you ever considered bidding to move over to something different? Uh, for example, the 757, 767 or the a320 for the last few years of the, of your career. I know the mad dogs are going away and you could end up having to move away, but given the choice, would you stay on the mad dog until retirement or does it appear appeal to you to have the challenge of transitioning to a new type? I guess it comes down to personal preference and there will be some pilots like that like variety and others prefer to avoid the hassle and pressure of everything involved in a conversion course and getting into the rhythm of operating on the line with a new aircraft. I welcome your insights into this question. Let me also take the opportunity to congratulate Nick on his retirement and for all that he has accomplished in his fantastic aviation career. Truly an inspiration to all those budding pilots out there. Keep the blue side up. Steve Hurst. That was oh, nice of him to uh, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and we have talked about this, Steve, on and off uh, the last, I don't know, several shows uh, regarding what are you going to do, Jeff, when the, the uh, mad dog is gone? And I'm still struggling with that. I'm not sure. 
uh, and and you make the points that I've been making. Um, it is comfortable to be on an airplane for a very long time. It's like putting on a well-worn glove. It feels comfortable, uh, and uh, there's no stress. Um, on the other hand, if I ended up, you know, it, the appeal of flying an airplane like the seven five seven six is there, uh, and uh, the only problem with that is it's a new type rating and it's a very stressful conversion course. The other way to go is uh, to go to the 717, which is basically the McDonnell Douglas MD-95. It's very similar to what Dana and I fly now. A little bit different cockpit uh, instrumentation presentation and uh, different engines and that kind of thing, but not a lot of differences. And it's only a six-day course, I believe, something around that. So that would be easy peasy, uh, very not very stressful for me. So I don't know. I have not decided yet. There's still a chance uh, because I've been through several fleet retirements in the past. And no matter what the uh, experts tell you regarding the uh, retirement schedule, they never, ever go the way that they say they're going to go. And so I have a feeling that uh, this airplane is going to be around longer than they think it's going to be. But, uh, you know, I'm willing to take that chance. I'm very senior on number 17 out of how many are there on there now, Dana? 600? Yeah, um, captains. <clears throat> yeah, so you know, I'm I'm in the very high percentile of seniority on this thing, and I, I I'll be able to stay on it until the last ones are gone, and uh, that could present some opportunities for me. Um, and it's possible if they stick around long enough uh, that uh, I'm I'm so close to my retirement date that I may be able to qualify for a training bypass, which means that I bid for an, another airplane, but they don't send me to training on it. Because uh, the amount of money and time and resources they use to get me qualified, and by the time I'm all qualified, I'm, they're going to get very little use of me, and uh, it might be cheaper for them to just let me, you know, not ever fly an airplane for Acme from that point on, and just continue to pay me. So that's also we'll just go on something. Just that, gardening leave. That's marvelous. There you go. Yeah. So I mean, I wouldn't be a, you know <laughs> averse to that. So uh, we'll see. You know, a lot of different uh, variables here, um, but uh, I'm just going to go along with the flow for now and see how, how things go. Okay. And Dana and I hear all kinds of rumors every time we go to work. Like, it's always something different, so you never really know what's going on. Not even what's sure Dana's really choice going to be? What's your, what are you going to go for, Dana, again? Uh, well, <clears throat> right now I'm struggling with the fact that I'm already seeing the writing on the wall because we are so short-staffed right now. And the fact that they're trying to take my days off, and I got a very interesting voicemail uh, the other day regarding that after I tried to tell them that I have to have oral surgery. So um, I'm really trying to decide. I have a fear and a feeling that what's going to happen is, is that they're going to realize that it's so short on the airplane that they've let too many guys go that they're not going to let anybody bit off of it. Um, and, uh, you know, basically bypass us into anything in the future for the next year or two. Um, and that leaves me right at the bottom of the list. I'm going to be 11 from the bottom, which is not a very good place. I'm complete opposite of Jeff. I'm in a terrible place. Um, not complaining because I'm still a captain and I'm sitting in reserve in Atlanta or will be, but I will have absolutely no control of my life and schedule. So that's not as everybody has listened to this podcast for a while knows where I want to be because I'm, I'm more about a quality of life type of guy. So uh, ideally, I would like to bid off as a captain in 
as we continue to not really expand the flying in Atlanta. Actually, it seems as though we are shrinking a little bit for that part. Um, I th- I'm, I'm not sure I'll be able to hold on uh, to Captain Hood unless I go to the 717. Uh, and I am really leaning towards going to that. My preference would be either the A221, uh, A220, or the A, uh, baby bus, what we call the baby bus, which is the 320, 321. Um, because, well, the re- reality is, is I might as well go to an airplane that I'm going to retire off of um, if I'm going to have to go through a long course. So going to the Airbus product, and that's where the, uh, the, the, the future of the airline seems to be. I mean, we do have a lot of seven Boeing 737 product and 5767. However, uh, as uh, newer uh, Airbuses come on, on property, uh, it seems as though the 5767 will continue to shrink, and the 73 will be the only other Boeing product, I think, in, in the future uh, for, for my career expectations. So... That's the long answer to my thoughts. I, I think probably the 717 initially, if, if I continue to stay in the left seat, if I go to right seat, I probably will go straight to the baby bus in the right seat is my guess. Now, a lot of people sure. ask uh, both Dana and I, uh, why don't you guys fly the, uh, the C-Series, the A220? And I would love to fly that airplane, actually, except that they're, they're not going to be based in Atlanta. I don't know, maybe sometime way into the future they might, but uh, it's planned for um, for uh, other bases for the time being, and I'm not going to commute to another base just to fly a certain type of airplane. That's just, in my mind, ridiculous. So, um, and I'm sure that Dana feels the same way. As nice an airplane it is, I want to be flying an airplane that is close, you know, the at a base where I'm close to. Yeah, and my feelings on that is I could actually be about 50 percentile in New York on the uh, A220. So that would be, it's pretty senior. Yeah, it's but, um, interesting. I, I I would be exactly the same way. I, I have no real allegiance to an aircraft. Much more important to me was uh, where I was uh, based and what I where I was going, uh, and how much control I had over my life. Uh, right. As a professional pilot, I think you you fly what's put in front of you, and you just get on with it. Uh, that's yep. your job. Uh, no, it's uh, what you do with your time off, where you go, and how much time off you get. All that kind of stuff is much more important. Yep, yep. Can, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, and, and very much what like uh, Jeff said earlier is it's like a like, you know like an old glove. I mean, I've been on the airplane, uh, not including my time as an instructor training the uh, teaching the airplane. I've been on the airplane now for well uh, twelve years essentially, and. Uh, you know, I go to work and I feel very comfortable. And it's for me going to the left seat uh, as far as the transition goes, because I've, I'm very familiar with the airplane, uh, learning the captain stuff from a, a familiar, familiarized position of knowing the aircraft has made my transition far yeah, easier. Yeah, you don't have to think about that very much. Yeah, don't have to think about that very on much. The, and I can, yeah. you know, I can look over and see what the FO is doing and have a really good judge of, of whether the you know the the new FO or the senior FO is doing an ex- excellent job, or whether they're you know having some issues and have to watch them a little closer. So you know that that for me is is a captain is a is a big big advantage um, that uh, I, I feel you know that that would play to my hand if I go to the seven one and if I go to the seven one. Quite honestly, I wouldn't mind trying to go in, into the line check program, become a line check pilot because I still still do to, even to this day miss teaching. I just don't want to come off the line and go into the simulator and lose lose my ability. You know, all these years that I spent 
uh, trying to become a airline pilot, like a lot of the you know mid career changes that we've influenced and talked to talked about, and and have you know people that have decided to move move into the flying world. You spend your entire twenties and thirties trying to get here. I don't want to spend my life in in a box in in the work environment in an office. I, I want to be out there doing what I love to do. That's fly airplanes. So mm-hmm. if I be, become a line check airman, using my knowledge that I have of the MD product. Um, I, I would love to do it on the 88, but that, that door is closed. You know, yeah. That opportunity is, is gone. So the only one I might have a chance at is the 7-1. So that is another thought, you know, part of my thought process as well. Very cool. So there you have it, at least at this moment in time. And let's see. I think we can squeeze another one in before we do the plain tale. Thomas sent us That's some. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Family Did show, it, does she actually family say show. the plain tale? Wow. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. No. no uh, you can substitute any term for that. <laughs> Thomas sent us in some uh, audio feedback about cleaning the flight deck. Hey, APG crew. This is Thomas. And uh, wanted to merge a few different podcasts I've listened to into a uh, quick piece of feedback for you. So, uh, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not going to talk about any other podcast on this show. I'm finished with that. <laughs> Recently, no, our go. own Captain Nick was featured on another podcast I listened to called Every Little Thing. Uh, I'm addressing some aviation questions from people who uh, don't necessarily have a background in aviation. So some more run-of-the-mill uh, questions for pilots. And uh, then I also heard a comment on one of the most recent episodes of Opposing Bases, and two of those things combined brought me back here to the APG show. Um, Captain Nick mentioned on Every Little Thing about a, uh, a type of pilot, shall we say, that is kind of the germaphobe who insists on going over every surface in the cockpit, um, you know, all the flight controls and everything with wet wipes, some type of disinfectant, you know, something like that to clean the aircraft down before they, uh, you know, before they're on the aircraft for their leg or for their uh, duration of flight, whatever it is. And um, on the other end of that, the guys from opposing bases, AG and RH, were discussing cleaning up the Tracon or cleaning up uh, their radar room and the fact that they have an approved liquid that they clean everything with. So basically, like, the scopes are only allowed to be cleaned with this liquid that, you know, presumably is isopropyl alcohol-based or something like that. But whatever it is, it's pre-approved for use on the scopes. You can't use just anything. So it got me thinking, do your airlines have a predisposition towards a certain type of cleaning liquid or wipe or something that you're allowed to clean the flight surfaces with? Did they kind of dissuade you from cleaning uh, the different uh, control surfaces and knobs and screens and things like that? Obviously, some of the cleaners out there that you can get may or may not harm the, uh, the displays or the protectant on top of them. So it's kind of an interesting thing. It's totally random, but just happened to be that I listened to all three of these podcasts and heard all three of them in rapid succession and thought, I think I'm going to bring it back around to APG again. So uh, are there certain ways that you keep the flight deck clean? Um, if you are one of those germaphobes, I suppose, um, what do you use? And does your company have a policy about it? So a little bit of a random question, but I appreciate your time as always. And thanks for the show. Uh, Thomas, I think there's a robot or something in the background that's about to eat you or something. Did you hear all that weird? Yeah, run, yeah. Mate, you run. All that feedback. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's Sound okay. Like the War of the Worlds. I, I hope we have not received feedback since he sent this in. So we're hoping you're okay, Thomas. 
Yeah. Um, so I was um, putting this in the in the camera. Uh, if you're watching the video podcast, I'm holding up a uh, a packet um, that has a. It's like a wet wipe, I guess. It's a large cleaning wipe. It's called eye cloth that we can uh, grab a bunch of in our pilot lounge. And it's uh, obviously, well, I should say obviously, it, uh, I'm assuming it's, it's approved to clean all the glass uh, surfaces of the instruments and whatnot, and including our EFBs. And of course, if you have an iPhone or something like that, uh, it works really well for that, even glasses. Uh, it's non-abrasive and it's basically, I, I bet that the number one ingredient in it is isopropyl alcohol. Um, just looking at the back here. Um, well, I'm not sure if it says. No, it doesn't. It's probably some kind of a proprietary. proprietary. Um, oh, wait, here it is. Um, yep. Um, isopropyl. It says contains isopropyl alcohol. So that's probably the main ingredient. Probably some distilled water or whatever in it too. Um, the interesting thing about this is it has half the back of the page of, or the, the back of the packet talks about uh, its approvals. It has the aerospace material specifications approval, Bombardier uh, Aerospace, Cessna Aircraft Company, Boeing material specification, BMS 15-5F Class A, Douglas material specifications. It has another number. Japan Defense Agency, U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy, Air Canada. So in other words, these things are probably a lot more expensive than just getting a regular plain cleaning cloth that has isopropyl alcohol in it, which probably does the same exact thing. But because this has all the approvals and you know the specs on the back of it, I'm sure it's pretty expensive, but it works very well. Yeah, we, we uh, have two uh, different types. Uh, one are biological wet wipes that we can use to clean stuff, uh, but not the instruments because... They leave, I hate it where people use them on the instruments because they leave a horrible gunky, you know, uh, smear residue on it. Uh, for the in, yeah, exactly. For the instruments, we have a similar one which is uh, called uh, Visual Anti-Static Wipes for Instruments, and this comes with a NATO part number. Oh, so uh, yeah, NATO. exactly right. Approved by major avionics and instrument manufacturers. So if you're going to do it on the screens, you use uh, the anti-static stuff. If you're going to wipe down the controls, we use biological wet wipes. Uh, and uh, this one, my, I have a two-stage one. Uh, one is the wet one, and then it comes with a second uh, pouch, which contains a dry one, which you can use to polish off. But uh, one thing we are very careful about is applying too much pressure to our LED. It was all right with the cathode ray tube displays on the old uh, 340, but when we went to LED displays, a little bit too much pressure, and you can make a very expensive mistake. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, here's something interesting that re kind of ties into this whole, you know, using something on wiping your instrument, as, as uh, Neil said. <laughs> wiping um, my instrument. You have to use approved wipes <laughs> on your instrument very important yes you do but um so this guy I was flying with says he's flying with this old geezer captain kind of like you know me i think that's what he was implying and he said have you ever heard of somebody using rain x on your uh, on the windshield and i said well I, yeah my car i put rain x on my windshield and rain x is a 
a product here in the U.S. that uh, it's uh, after the window's clean, you uh, on a on a cloth, you put a few drops of Rain-X on it, and then you rub it onto the uh, glass uh, windshield of your car. And it has it. What it does is it causes rain to uh, bead up and just basically flow flow right off. And sometimes when you have Rain-X a Rain-X treated windshield on your car you hardly even need to use your wipers because of what it's done to the chemical property of the, uh, that top surface of your glass. And I said, what a guy actually used Rain-X on, on the, uh, on the 88 windscreen. And he said, yep. And I said, ah, I don't know if I'd do that because it seems to me like, you know, you have to use authorized products on the windscreen. I don't know if they have any kind of special coatings on it or not, Dana. It's probably just plain old glass, several layers of glass. Uh, I would imagine that Rain-X wouldn't do any harm to it, but I'm I'm thinking that uh, that would probably be something that the mechanics would say, no, 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 you can't do that. Do you know anything yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, you ever notice on the airplane they have the little, there's a little uh, tube in front of the windshield? Yeah, that's when we used to have the rain repellent, which was a highly repellent. carcinogenic. Exactly. Yeah. They exactly. took those things out, um, but it's Rain-X, very similar, very similar to Rainex. Not yeah, but I think carcinogenic. But it, yeah, but it was like a, I don't think Rainex is like carcinogenic, no. like the no, stuff that was on the airplane was. Um, no, I would imagine you'd have to use what's approved for the airplane. I mean, I, I, I mean, I pour water on the outside of the windshield to mm-hmm. and clean it on occasion, but I don't think I'd go ahead and put Rainex on it. You know, it causes all types of problems with windshield wipers and gucking up and. Um, yeah, well, yep. he said that they they flew to Houston, and the reason why he put it on, he said after he put the layer of Rain-X on, he asked, you know, he had the bottle in his hand. He said, "You want you want to use this?" And the first officer said, "Uh, I don't think so," and because he had that same concern that we have, and he said when they flew in, it was like heavy rain, and he said that the guy, uh, the captain side, he didn't even have to use the wipers because everything was just like not sticking to the windshield. He said it was awesome. I love it. Uh, That'd be an interesting uh, in, question to ask at work. Yeah, I'd like to think, figure out if that's the case. If it's allowed, I'm going to start carrying a little bottle of Rain-X. <laughs> packets, yeah. yeah. Little packets. In the, uh, in the chat room, Nick Kamachko uh, mentions that on his C-47, they used Rain-X. Uh, okay. That way they didn't have to rely on their hydraulic windshield wipers. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah, it's probably a great idea. <laughs> 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 um, oh, dear. Yeah, so I, you know, I have a feeling it probably wouldn't do any harm at all because it's just glass. You know, now they say don't use it on. There are a lot of airplanes out there that have plexiglass, which is plastic, not glass, and you definitely do not want to use Rain-X on those types of windshields because they will damage the plastic. Um, but uh, anyway, good. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting plus, question. Yeah. Plus, our windshields are heated, so I don't know if that has an yeah. effect on chemical breakdown on the Rain-X or what it does as far True. as true. The uh, um, stickiness of it, because you know, of course, your windshield wipe is on. After time, Rain-X will, will gunk it up. So yeah, um, that's, that's why I, I personally don't use it on my. Well, mainly I Mike and Glenn say that they use Rain-X on their cars, but I don't use them because it gunks up the uh, gunks up the windshield wipers. Now, to answer uh, the uh, Thomas's question uh, a little bit further for us, we do have two things that we we can use. Uh, one's the Santacom. Uh, wipes that I, you know, they have down the uh, flight uh, mm-hmm. in, in in the pilot lounge, and also sometimes they have the benzo chronine or something. It's 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 also a uh, a sanitizing wipe that that we can use. 
you know, I've never seen an official list as to what, what we can use and what we can't use, but that's what the company provides available to for us to use. That, that benzo stuff is good for sniffing as well. Oh, yeah, man. That's a... That's I mean, that's, that's, on, that's yeah. on the airplane in the flight attendant's <laughs> kit. Oh, there you go. Uh, so, there you go. Yeah, I, I, I have to be honest. You think I'm that bad of a germaphobe. I actually hardly ever clean the flight deck. I will. Wait, really? If, if I am going to eat anything or use my hands to, to, to eat, then I carry my own personal supply of, you know, like a hand sanitizer or hand wipes that I'll wipe my hands. Oh, uh, but I just if, thought you put those surgical gloves on. No, no, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that bad. I, I I just put my fingers in my mouth and just like suck on my fingers and gets all clean. Yeah, and then, well, exactly. Right. Yep, 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 yep. But I, I was going to say that I clean my hands every time I go to the bathroom on the airplane and and wash my hands in that water. But that really isn't the cleanest water in the world. So you're um, probably right. The, the Santa wipes, I think, are are for like cleaning out the the oxygen mask, right? I mean, that's so I always assumed, but the, the, those were four. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's what I. Uh, anyway, if, you know what? If I decide to clean, <laughs> lot to say about that. Uh, I think it's time. You know what time it is, don't you? It's yes. Time. It's you uh, do. ten past uh, eleven in the evening. That's exactly what time it is, and it's also the time Quarter for us to play this installment. This week's installment of the old pilot's plain tales. Hey there, APG crew, Nate from Brooklyn with a super quick. That is not this week's installment. <laughs> That's of plain, not plain tales. tales. I'm sure that wasn't me. Yeah, it said Nate. It's very similar to Nick. Here we go. The old pilot's plain tales. Cloud suck. Cloud suck is a phenomenon commonly known in paragliding, hang gliding and sailplane flying where pilots experience significant lift due to a thermal underneath the base of a cumulus cloud, especially towering cumulus and cumulonimbus. Towering cumulus clouds can often be harbingers of destruction and for pilots they should be respected and generally avoided by a wide margin. There is, however, a breed of pilot willing to court the danger present in these meteorological monsters. The violent updrafts and downdrafts, the heavy rain and hail, the turbulence, the freezing temperatures and the lightning. These pilots fly some of the lightest aircraft around, sailplanes, but are willing to take the risks as the rewards can be remarkable. Some pilots succeeded in taming the beasts like the veteran pilot who sadly passed away earlier this year at the ripe old age of 96, Derek Piggott. Let me take you back to 1953 when Derek was flying in a basic open cockpit two-seat glider with an unfortunate air cadet beside him. Without oxygen, he took the aircraft into a large cumulus cloud over Derbyshire and when he and his co-pilot were nearly frozen stiff, he abandoned the climb and headed out of the cloud at 17,000 feet. Derek and his cadet were actually participating in the National Gliding Championship in an Air Cadet Gliding School T21 Zedberg, and his flight established a British two-seater altitude record. <laughs> 
A couple of years later, he tried a similar feat when he was flying out of the gliding centre at Lasham, just a few miles up the road from where I sit right now. Piggott was the chief flying instructor, and he was there in slacks and a shirt, gazing upwards at the sky. It was a warm and muggy day, and cumulus clouds had been piling up all morning, an ideal day for gliding until fingers of lightning began to spike out of the cloud bank a few miles from the airfield. A winch tow was out of the question, since nobody wanted to be attached to a couple of thousand feet of steel cable when there was lightning about, so Derek arranged for their tiger moth to give him an aero tow. He wanted to take advantage of the conditions to attempt his Gold Sea Height Gain Award, for which he needed to climb his glider over 3,000 metres, and possibly if the conditions were good enough, his Diamond Sea for a gain of 5,000 metres at 16,404 feet. An ARIA friend had been flying his fighter in the area and had confirmed that the tops of the cumulus reached 30,000 feet, so the attempt was on. Derek clambered into the little cockpit of the club's new Slingsby Skylark sailplane, and with the Tiger Moth pulling him airborne, he followed the tow up to around 1,800 feet. When he released the tow cable, he pushed the stick hard forward to dive 100 feet, which would put a notch on the barograph height recorder and indicate that he had cut free from the tow, and he heeled the Skylark onto its wingtip to make it clear to the moth pilot that he had released. Bringing his glider back to a more normal speed, the noise and vibration of the tow died away, and the loud whistle of air dropped to a quiet hiss. Easing up to the edge of the storm, he felt for the lift and soon found it. His variometer started to show that he was climbing, and he spiralled up towards the cloud base. Soon he disappeared into the murky depths of the cloud as he followed the invisible column of air that was rapidly pulling him higher and higher. Flying on instruments alone, he was on the rim of the storm, and timing his climb, he calculated that he was soaring upwards at a comfortable 14 feet per second, fast but not dangerous. A little after four o'clock in the afternoon, and still fairly warm in the snug cockpit, he passed 12,000 feet. He was approaching the icing level, and still smoothly climbing, until he suddenly hit trouble. Passing 14,000 feet, he was violently jolted forwards, as the little aircraft was slammed into a downdraft and then heaved up again. A screeching howl came from above his head, where the clamps that kept the wing in place were twisted, and he had to tighten his straps and brace hard back into the seat to keep his head from being banged about. The altimeter needle was swinging back and forth, and the beads in the variometer dancing up and down. He began to regret that he hadn't worn anything more substantial than his short-sleeved shirt and slacks, because if he had to bail out, it could be the end of him. The squeaking wing clamps were soon drowned out with the deafening rattle of hail and heavy rain pounding the glider, splattering over the canopy. He had flown in plenty of clouds, but nothing like this. 
A wind shear brought his speed up to 50 knots and he had to use his air brakes to bring the bucking Skylark back under control. The bucking eased and suddenly he was hissing upwards again. As the hail stopped, the cloud around him was suddenly lit up like an enormous flash bulb had fired. No thunder, but his world was illuminated by lightning and he could feel a tingle of electricity through the control stick and rudder pedals. Still no thunder, but then jagged stalks of lightning, many half an inch thick, began to lash at his glider. Then a blinding bolt smashed into the cockpit with the sound of a pistol shot. The bolt flashed between the rudder pedals and filled the cockpit with a stench of ozone, and although the electricity continued to thrash the little aircraft, it was quiet again. Just the whistle of the slipstream. In the distance he could hear the booms of thunder, and again the lightning snicked into the cockpit. This time it felt like his control column had been plugged into a power socket and his arm ached as the shocks ran through him again and again. He couldn't let go of the stick, he just had to endure the pain and there was no kidding himself anymore, he was truly scared. The last bolt to go through him made him yell out loud but as he continued to climb, he spiralled into less violent conditions, and the lightning eased away. Now he felt a new concern. He began to feel a little light-headed, and knew that he was starting to suffer from hypoxia, a lack of oxygen, and it was getting worse. There was nothing he could do. The little skylark had no oxygen, so he continued upwards. Changing his course, he straightened out, but the compass wasn't indicating properly and the controls felt stiff. He was icing up. He could feel the ice forming, and soon he needed both hands on the stick just to move it. He took a chance and he heaved the stick from side to side and the glider leapt upwards as the ice fell away. He could fly again, but the ice was also building on the nose and the leading edges of his wings. His trim tab was as far as it could go to counter the weight, and he began to worry that his pitot tube was icing up. As he tried to work out what might be wrong with his instruments, he realised he wasn't sure whether his altimeter read six or 16,000 feet. He opened up the little window on the side of the perspex canopy, and tried to breathe some fresh air, but he was giggling like a child and squinting at the instruments to try to read them properly, and he realised that he was passing 17,000 feet and then 18,000 feet and still going up. He tried to remember his plan and how high he needed to get to be awarded his diamond C, but he wasn't sure anymore, so he decided to continue to 19,000 feet and then head out of the cloud. He knew he was getting hypoxic. His eyelids felt as heavy as sandbags and his head lolled around and seemed difficult to lift up. The thermal was still very strong and as he squinted at the altimeter he realised it read 20,000 feet and he knew it was time to go. He felt limp in his straps. 
and close to fainting. So he put his fingers through the little side window to deflect some cold air onto his face. He eased out his air brakes and the hissing airstream quietened as he slowed. He began to descend, but another updraft caught him, and in his confused state he thought, I might as well go up again, just to make sure. Popping the air brakes back in, he shot upwards, and as the skylark spiralled round, Derek Piggott sank limply back into his seat. He had no recollection of the next few minutes, as his faithful little glider flew him into the record books, He was now an unconscious passenger, along for the ride. The trace on his paragraph was the only thing to record his story as it quietly ticked along, the needle tracing his height onto the rotating cylinder. Derek climbed so fast that the trace actually left a curving line on the smoke paper that leant backwards. An instrument that was only designed to cope with a six-kilometre climb which could only reach 23,200 feet, the needle flew right off the top of the recording paper. How he flew the aircraft in his semi-conscious state, he had no idea, but as he dove his aircraft down again, the trace restarted. Afterwards, it would be checked and double-checked, and by carefully extending the visible lines on the paper, it was possible to confirm that he had climbed above 25,000 feet. He didn't remember coming round, but slowly consciousness returned, and he was able to look around the cockpit. He was already down to 16,000 feet, and he slammed open the air brakes to hasten his descent. Down and down he spiralled through the dense cloud, until eventually he popped through the overcast into a mix of rain and hail. Deeply breathing the thick, cold air, he felt awful. Looking through the weather, he spied the hospital in Alton, the town local to Lasham. He flew round and round it, but in his confused state he couldn't remember how to get to the airfield. Several times he started to head west, but then... He became anxious and didn't want to leave the familiarity of the town because he felt truly lost. Eventually, as the rain died away, he was able to ease his way over to the airfield and he finally found himself circling above the park gliders, 6,000 feet below, that he had been amongst only an hour and a quarter previously. When he finally skidded the skylark to a stop on the grass, he could barely climb from the cockpit. He was in a bad state, and so was his aircraft. The lightning had burnt holes in the glider's fiberglass nose and scarred the fabric covering. There were slits and slashes all over the aircraft from the hailstones and the ice that had built up on the wings. The rudder had been hit by lightning, and it had ripped away a large portion from one side, leaving an ugly burn. It took Derek Piggott two days to recover properly, but he was awarded both his Diamond Sea, and in doing so, he had achieved a British glider climb record. Derek went on to enjoy a charmed life as a pilot, featuring in the movie those magnificent men in their flying machines, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and the Red Baron, as well as the Blue Max, where he was enlisted as one of several pilots 
who helped recreate the live dogfight scenes for the film. However, he was the only stunt pilot to agree to fly the stunt that forms the climax of the film. The two rival pilots challenge each other to fly beneath the spans of a bridge over a river, taking the role of both German pilots, and with multiple takes from different camera angles, Derek ended up flying through the wide span of the bridge, which was actually an island, 15 times. The wide span had a comfortable amount of room, but the story required the pilots to compete by flying through a narrower portion. The two Fokker replicas had about four feet, just over a metre of clearance on each side when passing through the narrow span. It was an amazing feat to do just once, but Derek had to fly through the span 17 times to get all the shots that were required. The danger that Piggott put himself through wasn't just due to the lack of oxygen he encountered during his record flight. The perils of lightning strikes are severe, particularly in sailplanes that are constructed from glass-reinforced plastics. Let me quickly tell you about a training glider that was operating from a site in the UK near Dunstable. The aircraft was a Schleicher ASK-21 two-seat glider, and the instructor was undertaking the last flight of the day since a line of weather could be seen slowly moving into the area. Thunderstorms had been forecast, so winch launches had been stopped, but aircraft tows were still available. Having been towed up to over 2,000 feet, the pilots had soared up to 4,000 feet before returning to the airfield along the front edge of the weather. They were in smooth air, being gently lifted at two or three knots, when a bolt of lightning reached out and struck the glider on the right wing. The power of the strike which was conducted along the control rods that run inside the wings, caused such an overpressure that it literally blew the wing open. The combination of the aerodynamic forces and the vast increase of pressure inside the structure of the glider caused it to literally disintegrate. The instructor remembered hearing an enormous bang and then feeling very drafty. He may have lost consciousness for a moment. Dazed, he knew that something was seriously amiss and he shouted to his student to abandon the glider, but deafened by the noise, the student couldn't hear anything. However, he had already decided that he should get out of the stricken aircraft and he jumped for his life. The instructor reached to jettison the canopy and then realized it wasn't necessary. It had been blown off. Both pilots managed to get out safely and by 1800 feet they were hanging beneath the canopies of their parachutes. The student landed on the roof of a disused petrol station near a busy road but escaped serious injury. The instructor, unfortunately, broke his ankle on landing as well as suffering sooting on his jacket, parachute pack and the back of his head as a result of the lightning strike. They were lucky and the Air Accident Investigation Board made several recommendations to glider manufacturers to try and prevent future occurrences. Another excellent plane tale. 
Um, and wow, the uh, the things that this man endured. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I'd ever gotten up in a, another airplane again after that glider thing that he experienced. I, I think uh, Derek Piggott was uh, a man who um, probably enjoyed a certain amount of uh, tension and danger in his he flying. Must have, yeah. Yeah, I mean, being a stunt pilot, etc. cetera, uh, he um, flew a replica of Cayley's glider. You know, uh, before the Wright brothers uh, flew, there was a chap called... Kaylee, who uh, sent his footman up in a, uh, a glider, well, they built a replica um, and uh, flew it, and uh, uh, Derek Piggott was a pilot. He was also a pilot in one of the um, uh, aircraft made to try and take some of the man-powered flight uh, records mm. uh, and win those prizes. Uh, so I've mentioned him in a previous plane tale, the one I did about um, On Wings of Gossamer, I think mm -hmm. it was called. The story of manpower flight. Yeah. So he's been around before, but uh, he was one of these blokes that uh, you know just lived for flying, and he was very well known in the uh, in the British uh, gliding uh, world, uh, and uh, much admired as well. He was, um, you know, he, I think he got an MBE uh, and uh, uh, many other uh, many gliding awards as well. So he's a, a, a fine chap, and uh, just so happened that uh, he sadly passed away earlier this year. Oh, well, that is sad uh, and amazing that uh, the story about him doing the stunt flying in that movie where the, he only had four feet of clearance um, in the yeah. narrowest you'd, you'd spans of the one, bridge. Once would be enough, but 17 times. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, once or twice. Me. Maybe that's, you know, doing anything yeah. more that's really pushing it. Yeah. Apparently the uh, director put a, um, a flock of sheep uh, beside the bridge uh, so that when he flew through, the sheep would be scattered and the watchers would realize it was a real aircraft and not a model. Uh -huh. um, but by the 17th take, the sheep got so used to it, they <laughs> just carried on eating grass. <laughs> I hope he got paid a lot for that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, he probably did it for fun because he seemed to be one, like one of those kind of blacks, didn't he? <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Nick, for the hard work you put into those things. Those are uh, just always very entertaining. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Um, clouds suck. Clouds suck? Huh? What? Well, yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't it? Clouds <laughs> suck. They, they do a bit. Anyway, we all yeah. like flying, flying outside of clouds. But no, it's a term I had never come across. I'd Cloud never, suck. Never heard of that myself either. All right, let's move on. Dave, he's a new listener, and uh, he's an AMT. He said, "I'm uh, well, let me repeat that again. I'm a new listener to ABG and really enjoy all you do. I'm currently an AM AMT at a major legacy carrier out of Cleveland and attending a school to get all my ratings and hours using the amazing GI Bill. As an AMT with my knowledge of the airframes, what, and I guess that's uh, aviation or aircraft maintenance technician, is that what that stands for, uh, Dana? AMT? Yeah, it's okay. exactly what Sam's for. Uh, he's working with the same people every night, which can make the job even more enjoyable. Um, oh, wait, no, I skipped. I'm sorry. As an AMT with my knowledge of the airframes, what advantages do you think someone in my position has that will help me in flying when I reach that level? Also, one of my favorite things about being an AMT is working with the same people every night, which can make the job even more enjoyable. So I'm curious, how is it flying with different pilots quite often? Lastly, there seems to be a disconnect on relationships between pilots and AMTs. In your words, what do you think may cause this? 
Happy AMT Day to all my fellow AMTs. Oh, I wonder what day that was. <laughs> well, you sent this in on June 19th. Maybe that was AMT Day. I don't know. Um, or maybe he sent this in actually on May 24th. <laughs> That's the other date that I see on this. Anyway, um, thank you, Dave. And I'm glad that you're working on your ratings and hours with the amazing GI Bill. Um, what advantages do we think that someone in his position has that will help him in flying when he reaches that level? Um, Dana, I think you'd be a perfect person to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, Dave, uh, <clears throat> your level of, of expertise, and especially with the, how the aircraft operate in general, uh, I think will be an excellent uh, excellent attribute uh, to help you get through training. Um even though nowadays, and, and, and I have to kind of caution myself because back in the day when we used to teach the airplane, um, it was um, uh, it was far more labor intensive to know all the systems on the aircraft. So I think going forward, um, we don't teach it nearly as much. So I think your level of understanding will help you to get to that level. Also, once you're out flying the line, um, it also will help you to understand the aircraft uh, a whole lot better. Also, uh, knowing that you have some interaction with the uh, pilots now, um, and sometimes good, and sometimes not so good. Um, sometimes you have a little, little uh, stress between uh, uh, friction, I think is the better word, between pilots and, and maintenance people. Um, it, it will really help you to understand uh, both sides of the job. Uh, kind of where I'm at with, with all of the experience I have with all the different positions that I've been in. Uh, it gives me a lot more um, apathy as to what the other person is going through um, at that time. so Or empathy, maybe. Em empathy. Yes. Yeah, empathy. Empathy, <laughs> empathy is the wrong word. thing to say. <laughs> empathy. Yeah, it's the wrong word. Empathy. <laughs> empathy is the proper word. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Uh -huh. um, so empathy as to what uh, the other person is going through, whether it's an AMT out there in, you know, blowing cold rain, trying to change brake or a tire or, you know, fix a problem with the aircraft or, you know, the pilot over, you know, sitting next to you is, is trying to explain to the AMT how, how things are, are not going, uh, you know, the way that, that they're supposed to be going and help help them to describe it to the AMT so they might be more effective at, in, in fixing the problem or addressing the problem. Um, so, you, you know, you have a unique perspective because, you you know, as you, you know, go forward in your career as a pilot, you will have that AMT background to fall upon. Uh, there are some airlines out there, uh, you know, not, not here necessarily that uh, do like to have a pilot that's an AMT. Because you can, you know, dispatch with an AMT. If as long as you're certified, they may actually allow you to fly with the aircraft and be able to, you know, with a with a uh, a, a flyaway kit, be able to be with the aircraft and fix it. So um, I, I'm not saying that's an American uh, way of things, but I've heard that is somewhat true on some major international, uh, you know, carriers out there in uh, in not so um, populated. You know, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Yeah, um, I, yeah, you know, not like a mainline type of uh, airline. Let's let's say like a uh, British Airways or Air France or or a you know United or something like that. But something like small, a like a Kalita, or, or something like that. Yeah. You know, something like that. You know, and I'm saying in in more of like second world, maybe in third world countries. That's if you you know are are trying to market both sides of that. I would imagine that you'd want to be with the main line here in the U.S., but I'm I'm just throwing that out there that that is a a positive as well. So, um, 
Uh, that's my take on it. I think that's an it's an excellent uh, excellent uh, ability that you'll have to be able to see it from two different perspectives. I agree. I think that uh, having the background and the knowledge and perspective of an AMT and then transitioning to pilot, it really makes you appreciate AMTs. And I never had the experience of being a, an aircraft maintenance technician, but I really do appreciate you. And I guess the relationship thing that you're talking about, I think that it depends on the pilot. There are certain people that just have personalities and they really don't get along with anybody, but uh, like fellow pilots. <laughs> so I don't know why, uh, but uh, I, I try to you know, get along with and appreciate every what everybody brings to the table. And when a when a maintenance technician gets on the airplane, and you know needs to uh, resolve a, a situation and work on the airplane and everything else, I, I really respect them and try to give them, you know, communicate as best I can to them what the problem is and how it occurred, and you know, give them as much information as I can to, so they can work the problem as best they can. But um, yeah, what do you do about that? I don't know. They're just they're people. <laughs> humans and some are good and some are bad i think um the relationship between pilots and uh mechanics um isn't always a natural one uh a mechanic has um you know got a thinks the aircraft is serviceable and believes the aircraft is serviceable and wants you to take it and the captain is always naturally um, reticent sometimes, suspicious, cautious, perhaps is a better way of putting it, and uh, wants to get the full explanation, make his own judgment, see the documents, uh, look at the MEL, and uh, make a judge decision. Uh, and I've been put in the situation several times where an engineer is pushing very hard for me to accept an aircraft, um, and I'm just not in two minds i'm really not sure and therein lies the difficulty uh, i feel like i'm being pressured sometimes to take an aircraft that i'm not convinced is uh, absolutely you know uh, as safe as i want it to be mm-hmm. and there there is the disconnect uh, an engineer might go well i don't understand what the problem is because i just fixed this damned airplane and it's ready to go and i'm sitting there going well yeah thanks very much really appreciate all the work you've done but you're not the poor sucker that's going to fly yeah. it and i see that this problem has reoccurred four times and every time it's been in inverted commas fixed and every time it's landed and the problem has reoccurred uh, what assurance do i have that it's not going to happen the same way, so I, I, I try and be as diplomatic as I can when I'm deal, dealing with those kind of situations, but there is obviously uh, a natural resistance sometimes to take someone's word for it. You want to be able to see uh, for yourself and see the guy, look at the guy in the eye and be assured that the work that's been done is going to make the aircraft safe and well to fly. Well, in, in case in point, look at our com- my conversation last week regarding the uh, the elevator. Uh, you know, Jeff, you flew that exact same airplane, mm-hmm. and I had that conversation with the uh, folks uh, locally who was a uh, a contract maintenance, and he was trying to do you know give us the best resolution. And I was talking to the folks in the in the control center, and, and the maintenance guy on the other end of the line didn't like what my query was just like you know what, what nick's talking about i mean we've got a repetitive check that's not being properly done per the procedures well you know where does it say they can do this and right of course did not like that answer but you know we got to the, the bottom of it and got it done properly so you know ultimately it is our our you know our behinds on the line whether it's illegally or physically 
And, you know, we've got to think about the hundred and how many of the passengers behind us, just like, you know, Nick has, you know, 200 and something. I used, you know, now he's retired, of course. But, you know, that's that's the thing is being diplomatic and talking to people. And, you know, what? You all three of us, I think, will probably be on the same page as I, I talk to people like I want to be talked to. I yeah. talk to people nicely. I don't I don't ever talk down to anybody. I always address people, you know, appropriately. And when there's there's questions that need to be asked and you just ask them in a way that that's hopefully not going to offend somebody. You always try to you know, ask how somebody's day is going. I mean, that just opens up the, the, the door for just being that you're pleasant. So, uh, you know, I try to uh, head off any of that negative uh, vibe between, you know, that can can occur uh, between maintenance personnel and, and uh, you know, as, as flight ops people. And just because something is, you know, in the MEL, the minimum equipment list, and it says you, that you're allowed to do operate the airplane with this, you know, degraded capability doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. And that's where airmanship comes in. And we've talked about that many times on the show. There's more than just, it's more than just being a pilot or a captain or a first officer. It's being, uh, an, you know, having good airmanship and good judgment. And that's why they pay us the big bucks to do this. To, so we make good exactly decisions. Right. right. And that's, yeah, exactly. All right. Very good. Great discussion. Thank you, Dave. Uh, welcome aboard the APG. And uh, I think you're going to do great in uh, transitioning to uh, a pilot, being both a pilot and AMT. That's that's awesome. All right. Yeah. And, and one other thing I want to mention on that, Jeff, and I just thought of it because one of my best buddies, Dave, who you've met, uh, flies for a uh, yellow airplane company, mm-hmm. uh, Spirit. And yeah. he also is an AMT. A uh, very oh, good buddy of mine. Uh, and he has actually utilized that in a different way as well. Uh, he works for the safety committee and the investigation committee for ALPA. So he's implied his ability as an EMT to, to work towards flying the airplanes better and safer and also, you know, help to investigate any situations that come that arise. And that's using your, your, your talents also in an additional, uh, a positive way. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, my goodness gracious. Can't believe what I'm seeing here. Who's that beautiful woman? I see. Oh, and oh. Who's that beautiful beer-swilling woman? What is that that you're putting in your mouth there? It is a dogfish head 60-minute IPA. Ooh, that's a good one. I like dogfish head. You're just about to go on the stage then, Steph. I am. Yeah, so are we doing a show? Is that this, what's going uh, on? Miss, Miss uh, USA pageant, right? Oh, okay. Or Miss yeah. World? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, try to, uh, you're kind of faint, so try right, to, and it's, it's, there you go. I just realized it's very echoey in here, and I'm going to uh-huh. move because I was trying to get all of this set up on my um, Surface tablet, which I brought so I could do work, and uh-huh. this is why I hate Microsoft. It just, nothing <laughs> seems to work right. Uh-huh. Let me okay. uh, find a different place where it's yeah, not. Actually, I, think, I don't even think it's coming from your earbud, Mike. I think it's just picking it up from the uh, computer, it? really. It is seems it really? like you're far Hello? away. Hello? Oh, maybe no? it is yeah. coming from that. Okay. Yeah. It is. Yeah. All right. I'll just come sit over here on the bed. How about that? Okay. All right. Can we all sit with you on the bed, Steph? Okay, let's all of us sit. Well, if you were here with me in Burridge, Ridge, Illinois, you could. But Where? Uh oh. <laughs> Where are you, Steph? Burr Ridge. Burr Ridge. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Tell, tell what us what you're doing up there. Time. Burr, Burr Ridge. Ridge. 
Well, right now it's raining and it doesn't feel very summery for the first day of summer. It is 68 degrees outside. Wow, that's chilly. Yeah. And you're up there doing some lecturing? Yep, doing some instructing, teaching, uh, an injection course. And I've got about 10 minutes to join you all because I have to go to a faculty dinner tonight. And of oh. course the air conditioning came on that I sat right in front of. Oh, that's okay. I really don't even hear it, so you can oh, stay there. I, it's not hot in here. I don't need the AC. Okay, yeah, that's probably not good for you. And I turned it off and it won't turn off. about right. Oh, well. I love hotels. I'm not sure how you guys do it. So. Well, I'm glad you made a cameo appearance. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Yeah. Well, we're, we were sorry that you weren't able to, to make it with us this uh, episode. but uh, sorry, we, sorry for the confusion. I yeah, I, that's okay. I, it's me. I just wasn't paying attention, obviously. Um, so we've talked about a lot of stuff on today's show um, and look forward to you uh, maybe putting in your two cents worth uh, when you get a chance to listen, um, especially the uh, one article that we were talking about regarding physical strength with the uh, – you know, flying. The I, I know which one that one is. Yeah. yeah. That's a 737. Yeah. But, uh, but I think, listen to what we said. I think you'd appreciate it. I'll listen to what you said. And I, I have, um, obviously I don't have any experience flying the 737, but I, um, just part of online, different online communities that I'm a part of, um, mm-hmm. several female pilots who do fly the 737 have voiced their opinions on it. And I can mm-hmm. maybe summarize a little bit. Not right okay. this minute. Cause I didn't go back and look at it specifically, but excellent. Um, I, I, the, the general gist is that they didn't think that there was, it, the max aside, they didn't think there was much of an issue. So. Yeah. I was saying that, uh, well, you'll listen. And no yeah, no I'll, reason I'll to listen. go over it again now because um, you know, we already fully fully covered it, I believe. But um, you want to you wanna hang around for a few minutes for some more I can feedback? hang around for about five more minutes. Okay, very good. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, what do you think about us continuing with some audio feedback from Dylan? Sure. Okay, here we go. Hi, APG crew. My name is Dylan, listening from Tibet. I've been listening for a few years now, and I'm always eagerly waiting for the next episode. Today, I have a little bit of feedback and also a question. My feedback is concerning the news you covered in episode 374 about Tunisia Air landing when they were told to go around. When you covered this piece of news, you talked about the problems that can come from ATC and pilots speaking different languages on the radio, as well as the problems that can arise from strong English accents. Here in Tibet, I teach English at a university, and I focus on teaching English as a foreign language, meaning that students will be using English to communicate with people who don't speak the same language as them. They might be speaking English with someone who's a native English speaker like me, or they could be using English to communicate with someone whose native language is something other than English. I'd imagine this is quite common in the aviation world. For example, say at Beijing airport, the person in the tower, uh, their native language would be Chinese. They might be communicating with a flight coming from Paris. That pilot's native language would be French. But the two of them are able to communicate by using English, a foreign language for both of them. I'm guessing my students probably won't be pilots or work with air traffic control, but they are learning English for much as the same reason as that pilot and the air traffic control. It can be very difficult to understand someone who is speaking English as a foreign language. For me, it took a while to catch the way my students speak. But it is very difficult for students to understand each other when speaking English. So I totally understand the difficulties between the Tunisian air flight and the tower. 
this can be a hard problem to fix. Now my question. The airport I fly in and out of here in Tibet is uh, the Lhasa Airport, LXA, uh, with an elevation of 13,000 feet. The last time I flew out, uh, I was curious about how long it would take for the plane to take off. I was assuming it would take longer to take off than at a lower elevation, but I don't really know why I thought this. So, um, for reference, on this particular flight, I was flying on a new Airbus A319-100. Pretty much all the seats were full, and it was about a two-hour flight. When I felt the jet spool up, I started my timer and stopped it when we were airborne. I'm sorry, I forgot to write down the exact time of how long it took. Uh, the next flight I took was on a relatively new 737 out of Chongqing. Um, this airport has an elevation of 1,300 feet. This was also a full load of passengers in about a two-hour flight. I include this because I'm sure weight is one of the most significant factors of a takeoff. To my surprise, the takeoff times of these two flights were within a few seconds of each other. So, I was wondering if the elevation of where you're flying in or out of is part of your checklists for takeoff and landing. And are you surprised that the time it took to take off between an airport at 13,000 feet and 1,300 feet are so similar? Thanks again for the great show and happy flying. Well, he poses some good questions here regarding performance at high altitudes. And uh, I think the first thing he assumes is that, you know, it would be better performance for somebody for an air. I think maybe I took it the wrong way, but I thought he said he was surprised because he thought that the higher altitude would be a better performance situation because you're already up at altitude. But in fact, as we all know, the higher altitude performance is actually harder. It's, it's more difficult because uh, you're working in much thinner air. That higher altitude gives you much thinner air and the, the power that you're going to get from your, your engines is less. And a lot of uh, your true airspeed, um, you're indicated to get the true. Well, I, I'm going to dig myself in a hole if I start working with <laughs> You're trying to work around density altitude. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Well, uh, that, as somebody, a general aviation pilot is very, very familiar uh, because it's much more affected than commercial uh, uh, airline flying as far as density altitude is concerned. Yeah, so, it, it makes a much big, bigger difference for us probably, although it's not yeah. uh, an airplane, it's an airplane. So, so what, what is that? So, so the, the main... Um, See if I can explain this in a way that it makes sense, because it all has to do with how dense the air is. The more dense the air is, the better the aircraft is going to perform because you have more air molecules per, you know, say you had a square foot or a square inch or some square cubic space of, of the environment, how many air molecules, air molecules you can pack into there will determine your performance. So the more air molecules you have, the better lift you're going to get for the aircraft. Um, go ahead. Now, as I say, it's really no difference than for us as far as lift goes. It's it's actually the performance of the engine, and and it's at normally aspirated engines for general aviation are far more susceptible to altitude restrictions than than a jet engine is. Uh, so and you, yeah, exactly. So as you decrease the number of those air molecules, so it decreases with temperature. The hotter it gets, you're going to have the air molecules are actually just moving faster in that space. So they spread out more. So the effect is that it feels like you have fewer molecules in that same amount of space. Um, and also with altitude, as you go higher, you have fewer molecules per given set of volume of air. 
Um, so whenever you do one of those two things, your performance decreases. So, um, so both altitude and, um, and temperature will have a decreasing effect on performance. Now, do you think in the, situ- the, the couple of uh, scenarios that he described, uh, he thought it was remarkably similar, the time that it took for the takeoff roll be- before they became airborne. Do you think that is more to do with the fact that the high altitude airport, they were probably using a much higher thrust setting? Well, uh, probably that. He also brought up weight. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we don't know was, what the weights were. We don't know what the weights were. I think that probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of variables. I think there's probably a lot of, there's, there's always a lot of variables. So that's why you really need to look at your performance calculations, especially if you're going to be operating in unusual environments. So that's my two cents on that. And unfortunately, I have to go to the faculty dinner. This okay. Was my very, we'll go to that darn very faculty brief, dinner. Brief uh, caveat here, but it's good to see you guys. I'll see yeah, you good to see you too. Week, I think. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant, Steph. Have a lovely evening. Have fun. And hey, I got a tip for you, Steph. Uh, Don't lecture to the uh, faculty people there. No, no. They they actually probably mostly know more than I do. I'm (laughs) on the younger side of the faculty, so I I defer to their wisdom. Okay. All right. Here you go. Have a good night. See you next week. Bye-bye. See ya. Cheers. All right. Well, so nice my six penny worth on, on that is, uh, of course, the air density varies uh, and with altitude, and that affects your thrust. Um, however, it also uh, affects the relationship between uh, your ground speed uh, and your indicated airspeed. So as you're roaring down the runway, uh, your engines are going to be producing less thrust. Because uh, particularly uh, in that takeoff environment, you've got thinner air going uh, through them. And you're going to have to meet, reach a much higher ground speed to get the same indicated airspeed, which will be your takeoff speed. So your ground roll is going to be a lot longer. And generally speaking, your time on the ground will be also a lot longer for that very reason. Um, so... Uh, I just think it was a coincidence. Perhaps the aircraft weight had varied, whatever was in the cargo hold, or the flap settings were different, or what, for whatever reason, those two times were the same between 1,300 feet and 13,000 feet. But I would normally expect an aircraft getting airborne from high altitude to spend a lot longer on the ground. Uh, and as a result, you know, you should have got a marked difference. Uh, when we took off in an A340 out of Johannesburg, which is only 5,000 feet, our takeoff roll was in the region of 20 to 25% longer on the ground. And so, so much more that we used to make a special announcement to the uh, passengers saying, those of you who are experienced uh, passengers will notice that we'll spend longer on the ground uh, during this takeoff than we normally would. But please don't be concerned. It's due to the altitude of the airport, um, such it, because it was a, a, a marked factor. Yeah, and you know, if you take a look at an airport like Denver, which is about five thousand feet, and I mean, the air, I think I'm not looking straight at the chart, but I think the the, the runway lengths are twelve thousand feet long. Yeah, the right shortest around. ones are twelve. I think. Yeah, twelve, maybe fourteen thousand feet Somewhere long. I think and, maybe you know, the, the, sixteen. Yeah, the, the takeoff roll at at, at higher altitudes can be far longer. Um, the other thing, you know, he mentioned about what we consideration in what I used to think about in, in brief specifically is going into a high altitude airport, landing into a high altitude airport. You know, when you go to flare, you don't have quite the uh, 
you don't have quite the authority that you normally do down towards sea level, like especially with our airplane that we're so used to flying out east. You know, you go to flare the airplane and, you know, the, the, the as you talk about air density, the, the effectiveness of the elevator is not there as, as we're normally used to. So uh, thinking about the fact of uh, a um, an earlier flare and also thinking about the fact of the, uh, of the effect of, on the braking on the aircraft and how much more energy you need to stop the aircraft uh, at that higher altitude because, because it, it, you know, it will be a much longer uh, landing roll. Uh, and and brake attempts will tend to be higher, as you know. You and I have uh, been briefed about through many memos, Jeff, going yes. to someplace like Denver or, or Albuquerque or El Paso. El Paso, yeah. Um, the uh, just a point of um, fact: the uh, there are six runways at Denver International. Uh, five are twelve thousand feet long. One of them is sixteen thousand feet long. So. I want the sixteen thousand foot long one, please. <laughs> now, how, now, here's a question. I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around this, and I'm not sure I quite know if this is a factor or not. So we're talking about we need more, uh, more distance, more runway to take off at the higher altitude. But we've also said that our ground speed has to be a lot faster to get the appropriate indicated airspeed because that's what the airplane really cares about is indicated airspeed. Um, so does that mean that the actual timing if you hit the 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 stopwatch is going to be significantly different even though your distance is a lot longer because your ground speed's higher you know what i mean i'm thinking it depends how much you're willing to flex the engines jeff so if we uh, applied a flex temperature uh we could reduce the power of the engines on an airfield at sea level and achieve the same takeoff run because we're using much less thrust mm-hmm. than we would be at altitude. But eventually, of course, you can't achieve a balanced field performance because the airfield altitude becomes too high and you just have to use a very a much higher power setting. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're working balanced field, in other words, you're balancing the power so that you always achieve your takeoff speed at the same point on the runway, then that can work. But... Yeah. Uh, Eventually, I mean, on the 340-300, which wasn't overpowered, uh, then nice way to say it. <laughs> in Q, we used to basically use full power out of Joburg because we had to. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> hope they just stay together. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that uh, Dana and I, our, our company has been doing for, for the last few years is what we call flex flap settings is that what they call it flex settings flex flap something like that uh, where they um, instead of using just a standard takeoff flap setting on all all takeoffs they'll adjust that um, and if they can get away with the performance of using a reduced thrust and the it's a nice long runway they'll instead of using flaps 11 we'll use flaps 5 and that always means that we're going to be on the runway for a lot longer I mean sometimes it's like you feel like looking down at your watch to see if you know how much time has elapsed since you started the takeoff roll because you've been forever on the runway, but you're you're at a much higher speed, of course, uh, by the time you uh, finally lift off. And and we all love those flaps five takeoffs, don't we, Dana? Yeah, uh, it's no kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's really, I mean, the, the airplane is the the airplane is rattling, it's rolling, it's yeah. jarring. It's it's just not a very comfortable ride. And, and you can you know, imagine the people in the back are going, "Are we ever going to lift off here?" Yeah, well, yeah. And, and when we're, I mean, almost never is it off of uh, you know the the north side, Jeff. It's always mm-hmm. tends to be in Atlanta, 
two seven Awkward. right, two seven right, nine, 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 nine left. Um, and you know, you, you're looking at the the runway available signs going by, and mm-hmm. you know, you're down to on 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 such a what are we at ten thousand feet on that runway? No, it's longer than that now. They, they extended. It. I don't remember what it is. I mean, 12, I, almost twelve, I think. I mean, almost twelve now. Well, it depends on if it's Lima Charlie or not. Yeah, yeah. That's which I don't I don't remember the specific number. I think that's just under eleven thousand. So yeah. you know, you're looking at that, and you know, you're looking. It's about four thousand. Oh, three thousand. Oh, yeah. Well, we're finally rotating. You know, you're losing quite a bit of that runway up. Um, and flaps fly. I flew, when I was a first officer, I flew uh, several guys that absolutely refused to use uh, flaps five. They would always use normal power takeoff. Yeah, well, if, if you used uh, flaps eleven, then you'd have flaps to 11. go flaps eleven. You'd have to use normal power, which yep. is a higher power setting. And now you're thinking, well, now I'm. Uh, are we exposing ourselves? To, to the greater possibility failure. of engine failure. Yep, exactly. That would be a big thing on my mind right now, especially the number of engine failures we've been experiencing on these uh, JT-890s, uh, 80s, 80s. JT-80-219s. Uh, 12,390 feet full length for full length, uh, yeah, 27 so. right. It, it's, it's, I it's think about 12,000 feet. Uh, you know, if you take that 390 feet, that's about where uh, Lima Charlie is or Mike 2. But anyway, regardless, it's a long runway. It's a and long runway. And that's the a, one we're going to get the long roll but you know it yeah. you know a lot a lot of factors i think beyond i mean some of the things when i'm thinking about is wind uh you know what was the wind like what you know what were the engines are they different engines on the airplane mm-hmm. yeah. um what was the flex or what was there a flex was a max power uh you know it there is in theory some places or some some points in time that you take off roll would be about the same amount of time Depending on the conditions, uh, both at thirteen thousand feet and thirteen thirteen hundred feet, it really would depend. Yeah. Now the problem we often suffered was not any of the problems we've discussed, but um, exceeding the tire limit speed. Mm-hmm. And if you did that on takeoff, because uh, a slightly slow rotation, you'd exceed the tire limit speed. And uh, if they were brand new tires, uh, which cost over a million pounds to replace in the aircraft, it was very easy to have them all uh, taken off when you landed back at Heathrow and uh, thrown away. Uh, And the company used to get very upset when that happened. (laughs) Were you you exaggerating when you said a million pounds? No, I don't think so. If you can take off, uh, I don't know how much these tires cost, but... uh, When you wreck a, a full set of uh, tires, um, that's, well, maybe it would be that. How, how many tires are on the on the three forty? Uh, well, it's for two four eight through twelve. Wow. Hmm. So I don't know how, exactly how much that costs, but it's yeah, a lot of money. Awful lot of money. Yeah. Hey Jeff, do you know our tire tire rotate our tire operational speed? It was like what two hundred five or something like that. Yeah, I think it's two two. I think it's two ten. Okay, 210. That was 200 something. Two, yeah, 205. Too fast. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Very, very good. Well, that was a good discussion. Thank you, Dylan, for asking the question. Uh, So we have time for one more uh, and just barely. No, you know what? We might actually be too close to the end. Why don't we just go ahead? We also didn't do the coffee fund. Yeah, we did. Yes, we did. Did I miss it? And while we're talking about it, we could have done another one feedback. (laughs) Yeah. Well, oh, I can, I we can still fit I'm that sorry. in because I can just edit all this out. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. Um, what, what, Go on, how one big more. is one too more. big? One okay, how big one is too more. big? Well, Robert sent us some feedback. Interesting question. Robert from Marietta. Marietta. Uh, this came up for discussion in a forum recently, and I've noticed varying lengths of seat belts in all kinds of seats. 
older aircraft seem to be shorter in length than the new aircraft seatbelts overall. So is it truly up to the flight attendant's discretion or do different exit doors accommodate different sized passengers? So he's referring to this article, this link here from news.com.au in their travel section. A man accuses Qantas of fat shaming him out of exit row seat. Darren Beal says he specifically booked exit row seats for extra legroom, but was bullied by a, that was in quotes, by a flight attendant enforced. A man, let's see, he uh, was on a local uh, Today show in Australia that he specifically booked the seat in the emergency exit row on a Melbourne to Brisbane flight so he could have extra legroom. But a flight attendant told him he couldn't sit there due to air regulations. When he questioned the rule, he said that the flight attendant suggested he buy two seats in the future. Oh, he must be big. Um, Mr. Beals said he felt bullied and was forced to spend the flight in an ordinary seat. He maintains he would have been able to help in an emergency. Uh, she, the flight attendant, says, well, look, again, airway regulations. You cannot sit in an exit seat if you're disabled or, you know, or if you require an extended seatbelt. Uh, Darren Beals of Geelong or Geelong said he felt bullied and belittled by the Qantas flight attendant. Um, he said, I can fit in the seat fine. I didn't need a second seat. It was fat shaming. She was rude. Uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority provides guidelines to Qantas about safety in the emergency exit row and recommends passengers seated there are able-bodied and capable of helping in an emergency. Passengers who buy seats in the exit row are asked to adhere to a range of criteria when they book. If the passengers are unable to meet this criteria, airlines, including Qantas, will ask passengers to change seats. Uh, that's what Qantas said in a statement to news.com.au. Um, customers who purchase an exit row seat are told they must satisfy the requirements during the booking process. So uh, Qantas's website does say passengers who need an extension belt should not be seated in the exit row, which is consistent with other Australian airlines. So uh, he's just upset because uh, he didn't get his nice legroom seat. And, you know, that that is a safety consideration, whether you like it or not. You know, the flight attendant does make an assessment and if you're using a seatbelt extender, that may indicate that you may be too big to provide suitable assistance in an emergency. What do you think, Dana? Well, I think that um, I'm a guy of size. I mean, I'm not, you know, severely obese. No, not at um, uh, I am, you know, I've got very big shoulders. And, and I often think about, honestly, if I had to go out the cockpit window, if I would even fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, I don't know that I would very easily Try fit. Try next trip. No, I'm just well, yeah, I should try. I should try it. See if it will work. Uh, <laughs> get stuck. <laughs> Delta pilot. Oops. Hey, hey, yeah, pilot gets stuck in, uh, <laughs> in 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 window when attempting to see if he can fit through it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That would not be a good headline. <laughs> oh, we can man. have fun with it on the show, though. <laughs> I, I can I can see this on U, USA Today or NBC World News Tonight or whatever it is or ABC World News Tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pilot tries to go out the window, gets stuck. <laughs> Just practicing. <laughs> I think you'd fit through it. I I probably I mean I probably would in, in yeah. worst case, but you know in certain situations, I mean it does say you have to be able body, and mm -hmm. so um, it, it really comes down to how do you handle that. Uh, and I and I agree that this person probably was not handled properly. Mm -hmm. 
but you know i hate to say it but you know he may have been a uh, a door plug instead of you know a door no i'm only kidding i'm really only kidding i mean he probably could very very well have helped out um and uh you know how do you how do you judge neil bawadi person i mean if somebody's 95 years old and cane barely can walk and, and, and it's obviously brought on the airplane with a wheelchair you know you can argue that that person probably is not able-bodied but if somebody is you know uh, you know, uh, slightly overweight, maybe, you know, is over exceeding the capacity of the one seat needs an extension of the seatbelt. Uh, is that the definition of somebody's not able bodied? I would argue probably not. I, I would argue. I mean, um, uh, what's, what's, uh, what's his name that came to see me in Nashville? That came to see you, uh, in Charlotte, uh, that um, came to see, see, uh, Steph and Charlotte from Pittsburgh. Oh, 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 um, uh, JJ Pittsburgh. JJ. Okay, so yeah. he's 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 a little bit of a larger guy, but you want to know what he? I would I would say he was fully able bodied, and mm-hmm. you know he he may or may not need an extension. I don't know that. You know, right. I'm just I'm just using him as an example. You know, but you know the the guy had a lot of energy. He could walk. He could run. You know, he probably could run. He could go up and sing, and you know, fully able body. So he can't look at somebody mm-hmm. and just say, "Hey, you're not able bodied just because you're waist size." It's just not. It's just not. It's not fair. I don't right. think. Okay, I'm going to put my six penny worth in and say that the cabin crew have to make a very quick assessment. They've got a lot of duties before takeoff, and one of which is to ensure that the person who is seated beside the emergency exit is fit and able. And they can't spend a lot of time saying, oh, I just want you to run up and down the cabin a few times to make sure you're you're fit, and uh, I just want to measure you to see whether you can get through that emergency exit fine. She had to just make an assessment, and her assessment was that this wasn't ideal. Uh, My personal, if I'd been asked as the captain, what do I do? I would have said, well, ask the passenger to be substituted with someone who think is fit just for takeoff and landing but let them return to their seat for the rest of the flight because that's obviously not a problem once you're in, you know you've reached the cruising height and particularly if it's a long flight and they paid already paid for the legroom seat they deserve to have it but just advise them that uh, for takeoff and landing they're going to have to uh, swap with another passenger that's still shaming nick i mean i agree with what your philosophy is there um you know when the flight tenants come through the cabin at least at our company they do ask what is that? <laughs> nice what? one. <laughs> what the? <laughs> wow. Nice one. That was wow. good. I like that. That's good accompaniment. Can we that is use that next time? Interesting. I uh, don't know why that all of a sudden that page that I was on just decided to start playing music. Exploded. Yeah. I Because um, I wanted to actually see a picture of this guy. Well, I, and, and, and I was just going to say what I was closing with is that they actually come through the cabin and, you know, when they brief the exit rows, they're asking you personally, are you willing and able to assist in case of an emergency? And if that person responds yes, and you look at the person and they are, they're not obviously, I mean, if person of size, how can I can I can say that? Uh, you know, per, a person says that they're willing, willing and able in, in, in case of emergency. I, I don't see how they can they can move the guy. Well, I I would say that the person saying yes is no actual indication of whether they are capable of doing. The cabin crew is the person who is trained and able to decide. Now, in your case, different, Danny. You're a trained pilot. You understand what is required 
to be able to uh, work and assist and allow, help people out through an exit or whatever your duties are as an ABP beside an emergency exit. But a passenger isn't aware of all those duties. So uh, it's up to the cabin crew to make an assessment. And she does so, hand on heart. She would much rather have probably not moved this passenger because she realised it was likely to offend him. However, she did her best in the situation, and I would fully support her in that. Yeah. Well, interesting questions always raised on our show. With that, I think it is now time for us to end the show. I think we've gone over the three-hour mark, so we do apologize for those of you who are on a strict schedule. Um, we do appreciate the uh, you listening to the show, downloading it to your favorite podcast client, um, reviewing it on iTunes and what will soon now not be called iTunes. Not sure where the podcast – I guess the podcast will live now on podcasts on the mac os as well just as it does on ios um all that stuff uh, you guys are great we do appreciate our community more than you know and uh, if you want to learn more about it and other stuff uh, regarding the airline pilot guy show including merchandise and uh, uh well so much more the apg library apg live plane tales uh, and all that jazz head over to airlinepilotguy.com and uh, we're also on social medias. And on uh, Facebook, you can find us at the Airline Pilot Guy. If you use that as a search or just type that in after your normal Facebook uh, intro. And uh, Twitter and Instagram, we're at APG Crew. And we're also on Slack. Become an APG Slacker by listening to what Hillel tells us right now. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for all the hard work you do for keeping that Slack site going. And uh, a big round of applause for our producer assistant. Hooray! Thank you, Liz. Liz Piper in Toronto. Yay, Couldn't Liz. do it without her. And remember, we're going to be in Oshkosh next month. More information about that is the closer we get. And uh, don't forget about the, uh, the, the Osh Blast 2019 Jim Mercado Design t-shirts available uh, by... If you're going to the show, uh, send the email to oshblast2019 at airlinepilotguy.com. That goes to Liz. She'll get you on the list. And if you're not, then head over to Teespring. Again, this is on the uh, APG website, APG store. So with that, finally, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Hasta luego. Good day.